The following podcast may contain movie spoilers, outdated pop cultural references, and occasional f***ing language. Sensitive listeners should plug their ears with their fingers. In three, two, one. Yes. <laughs> Rolling sound, quiet. Speak. Good day, good world. What you watching? Be specific. You're back with us for our second episode of Subgenre Season 3, Time Twisters. Movies that don't play by the rules of the normal timeline. The film we're talking about today is such a good match that it even has time in its title. I'm your host, Josh Dassel, and today we're putting some gauze and Vaseline on the lens for a time period, time-bending romance about love across the ages. Starring the Man of Steel, Christopher Reeve, the soon-to-be medicine woman, Jane Seymour, and Captain Von Trapp himself, Christopher Plummer. We're headed to the 1910s for a love as old as time. Sign the register and check into room 416. We're going somewhere in time. And joining me in Studio K is the always popular host of the Art Curious podcast and its YouTube channel and its book, Art Curious, the unexpected, slightly odd, and strangely wonderful in art history. And she just happens to be my lovely wife of, I think it's 14 years now. It's Miss Jennifer Dassel. Hello, Jen. Hey, hey. Thanks for having me. I'm happy you're here. I'm sure your fans are happy that you're here and that they're all tuning in to listen today. And I'm happy about that. Yay. I'm happy to bring them along. You are, as many of our subgenre guest hosts are by season three, you are a returning guest host. Yes, I am. Very proud of that. I was here for season one when we were talking about submarine films to talk about Le Chant du Loup, The Wolf's Call. And then I was also here for the Gentleman Thieves season last time to talk about one of our mutual family favorite movies, which was Sneakers. And those are season one, episode three, and season two, episode two. If you have not listened to those, please go do that. You are also in some of our pickup shot episodes talking about various things. So all over the place. Yeah, I am here. I use you because you're in the house. <laughs> I'm, I'm whoops, sorry. I, just, I scratched that. See, you hear this? Ding, ding, ding. Yeah, that's good radio. Okay. Yeah, fantastic. Anyway, yes, I live here. And uh, we mentioned that you are the host of the Art Curious podcast, which by the time this episode airs at the beginning of May will be in its 13th season. 13th. Yeah, I'm starting to lose count, honestly. I really do have to take a minute and be like, what? Where am I? <laughs> and what's season 13 about? Season 13 is about modern love, couples in art history, but especially in the modern era. So 20th century. Also, if you are here to listen to Somewhere in Time today because you're a romance person, then listen to the podcast season because it's all about romance. Cross-promotion. I love that. Uh, just to remind people about season three. So season three, like you said, in season one, we talked about submarine films, a little underloved subgenre, in my opinion. Season two, Gentleman Thief movies. And uh, in the third season here, we're talking about time twisters. And these are going to be movies that play with the timeline in, in one way or another. When I thought of doing this season, Somewhere in Time came to my mind for a few different reasons. We can safely say that's a time twister movie, right? Oh, yeah. But what I love about it is that it's going back in time or trying to deal with a permutation of time without there being a device or a gimmick. It's basically using the power of the mind to get you back into the certain time period. And I think that's kind of cool. We don't want to 
spoil anything much yet. We're going to break this thing apart here in a moment and talk about it. But just generally, I know from experience that you are not not a Somewhere in Time fan. That's a double negative, so it's proof positive. (laughs) (laughs) Yes, I am a fan of this movie. I have it on DVD, because that's how long I've been a fan of this movie. I have its soundtrack. I have it on CD and record, just because why not? But that doesn't mean that I don't have some strong quibbles with this movie. It's just that some of my interest in this movie transcends its multiple problems, I think. (laughs) I'm glad you mentioned that, that we're going to talk about both the positives and the negatives of Somewhere in Time. You need those for a well-rounded film, I think, and this one has both of those in spades. So before we get into the plot of it, let's do as we always do and set the scene for this film, talking about how it was made and who made it and all those types of things. What do we know? So it was filmed between May and July of 1979, and it was shot primarily at the Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island. Mackinac Island's in Michigan, right? Exactly. And then parts of it were also shot in Chicago, basically kind of the first little chunk of the film before his apartment. His apartment. Like that. Yeah, 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 yeah. And it was finally released out in the theaters on October 3rd, 1980. Yeah, like you said, shot in 1979. So this is post Superman Christopher Reeve. Correct. Which we'll talk about him in just a second. But, yeah, yeah. but this film is sort of using his stature at the time, along with other people who are in it, obviously, but using his stature to prop the film up. At least among, I think, his agents or his people, it was a question as to whether or not this was the next good film for him to follow up Superman with. But suffice to say, I think it turned out well. Good Uh, job. Yes. Good job, Chris Reeve. And in 1980, the film produced by Rastar Pictures, the same company that would also bring you Annie in 82, would bring you Peggy Sue Got Married in 86, and one of my favorites, The Secret of My Success with Michael J. Fox in 87, and was based on a novel, I think? Yes, it's by um, Richard Matheson, who wrote Hell House, uh, if people who are horror fans know of him. Um, I Am Legend, I think. I Am Legend, yeah, exactly. So he's kind of known for the darker fantasy side of things or horror side of things and this was a based on a book that came out in 75 called bid time return i don't like that title yeah it comes from i think richard ii it's a shakespeare quote i believe. I like that title <laughs> <laughs> good save good save good save so this is where i come at it from a book person perspective but also to say very unhelpfully i don't remember anything about this book have you read it i've read it i read it a few years ago i read it after I saw the movie, because I loved the movie. So I think as book people do, if they find a movie that they like and they want to dig deeper, they'll go back to the original source. But I remember being not super thrilled with the book in comparison. Mm -hmm. I do remember a couple of things which we'll get into. One is based on the setting and the other is way later. We'll talk about the ending. Got it. Other than that, kind of unremarkable. I think the movie is a better situation. The movie, and I'm going to rely on you for the pronunciation. I have not heard of this director before looking into this. His name was, how do you pronounce it? I think it's Geno Schwark or Schwartz. S-Z-W-A-R-C. Geno Schwark. I can't remember if Geno Schwartz, if he's like Polish or Czech. I did not look him up in advance. I do not know. I did not do my homework here. But the man who directed this kind of gauzy period piece also directed Jaws 2. (laughs) (laughs) Also also directed Supergirl. He did Santa Claus the movie. The resume is kind of all over the place on, on Geno, but Really interesting combination. Yeah, and I think did a lot of TV before he did Somewhere in Time. The thing that surprised me more than him directing is the producer on this was Stephen Deutsch. And Stephen Deutsch did some cool movies. 
but he also, besides producing Somewhere in Time, produced Bill and Ted's Excellent Adventure. <laughs> Are you talking about this for your Time Twister season? I can't tell you what we're going to talk about or not talking about. Oh, man. But really, you don't come to this film for the director, and you don't come to this film for the producer. You really don't even come to it for the writer, even if you're a fan mm. of his books. What you do come to it for are the stars, and this has three great stars. Yep, we've got Christopher Reeve, of course, Superman himself. Christopher Reeve, at this point, was huge. And this is also Jane Seymour, who would later become Dr. Quinn Medicine Woman on TV, but was a Bond girl previous to this, so she definitely had the goods at that point as well. And let's not forget Christopher Plummer, uh, who I mentioned was Captain Von Trapp, but if you are not going that far back in cinematic history and you only want to go a couple of years ago, was Harlan Thrombey in Knives Out. Yes, yay. I have talked about this movie with you on and off, or I've just mentioned in passing that, you know, I watched it again for the 80 millionth time. And what is the number one thing I talk about with you when I talk about this movie? Their acting? No. Their beauty. (laughs) These are such beautiful people at their most beautiful, and it's like preserved in amber what you want a gorgeous couple to be. It's amazing. It's amazing. Good job, Hollywood. All great actors in their own right, but in this movie, they are there to be beautiful, and they achieve that goal. Success. This movie was shot by Isidore Mankowski. Isidore Mankowski has shot a number of movies that I like, some of them better than others, the better ones being the Muppet movie. That is a great one. Uh, Right? You go from shooting the Muppet movie to somewhere in time, but then he also shot the uh, the remake make of the jazz singer with Neil Diamond from early in the <laughs> 80s, which I have a special place for in my heart, but uh, nice looking stuff. Yeah. Edited by Jeff Gorson. Gorson, I didn't realize until I started looking at his resume, basically has edited everything Adam Sandler has ever been in. Okay. So I don't know if that's on purpose or if, you know, if, if Sandler like trucks this guy from movie to movie, but he basically has done everything from Happy Gilmore on. Interesting. Yeah. Costumes are a big deal here, I think, in this movie because we are a period piece. They always tend to be. Costume designer here, Jean-Pierre Dorliac, Dorliac. Um, who was nominated for an Oscar for this film, actually lost to Anthony Powell for the movie Tess, which I have never seen. I don't know anything about it. But did some other pretty amazing stuff in his career as well, hmm. including, I think, uh, The Blue Lagoon. Not many costumes to make there. Well, that's what I was going to say. Is it like the occasional <laughs> fig leaf? Like, right. great job there. But also, and it's appreciated in this house, was the costume designer for years, I think, on The Greatest American Hero. <laughs> I love this so much. The the TV show about the the superhero and Quantum Leap. I feel like I can't quite get a handle on this crew. (laughs) Perhaps even bigger deal in this film is the music. The score here is by John Barry, who is a multiple Oscar winner. He won Oscars for Born Free, The Lion in Winter, Dances with Wolves, and one of my favorites and definitely listed as one of, I think, AFC's top scores of all time, which is Out of Africa from 1985. Yeah, four-time Oscar winner. You know, that's not bad. It's not bad. Barry's scores tend to be big. They tend to be lush and sweeping. Yeah, for sure. I mean, epic is definitely the word too, but not like adventure epic the way that I think John Williams is, but definitely more romantic, I think. And And I love this score. I've been trying to give some special shout outs to uh, people on the crew that don't normally get a shout out in any of these podcasts. And so today we're going to 
since we're talking about the Grand Hotel in Mackinac Island, which is a giant hotel on an island, beautiful thing, historical thing, we're going to give some love to the location coordinator, a gentleman by the name of Dan Dewey. Hey, Dan, how you doing? Yay, Dan. Uh, Dan worked on all the right moves, so uh, I I guess uh, followed around Stephen Deutsch uh, from show to show, but was also credited on this film besides being the location coordinator with being a production assistant. I'm imagining started as a production assistant and then got the bump to Uh. location coordinator to to get a few more bucks. I am familiar with that path, Dan. (laughs) I have done similarly. That's how it works, right? Budget on this, not terribly big, even for the time. I know. It's kind of shocking. It was a $5.1 million budget, which, yeah, that doesn't seem so huge, especially when you have big name stars behind it. You know, about $5 million, I think, to shoot it and really was considered a disappointment uh, financially because in its opening weekend only grossed just over a million. And I think to date, it was only like less than 10 worldwide. Yeah. The better news is that we can talk a little bit about its following and how it's received this cult status over time. But I think for sure it did better in international markets, as a lot of films do, than here in the U.S. So, like, Somewhere in Time was bigger in Asia for whatever reason that is. And I think you could speculate that it could have a number of things that would be more interesting to that market. That kind of lush romance that I think sometimes Americans can get a little cynical about that Mm. I think is more acceptable abroad. Uh, But certainly the kind of sci-fi fantasy time travel element, too. Regardless of whether it did so well in the box office, it has gained a bit of a cult following over time. It's romantic. And if you're talking about a romance film, like this is definitely one of them. And has gained such a following that I found out in the course of researching for this, there's a whole fan club dedicated to this movie called Insight. Yes. I-N-S-I-T-E. Yeah, and I can't remember. It's That's an acronym and it stands for something. It's like the International Somewhere in Time. International Network of Somewhere in Time Enthusiasts. That's, that's right. right. Okay, I remember that now. Insight has also been in instrumental, I guess we could say, in keeping not only the interest in the movie alive, but also helping to arrange the yearly Somewhere in Time weekend that they have at the Grand Hotel Uh on Mackinac Island. So people come from all over the world once a year (laughs) to go and basically wear period costume take walking tours of all the filming sites and we'll bring in stars and crew, cast and crew will make special appearances and give lectures and talk about their experiences making the movie. So why have you never gone to this? Okay, well, the reason why I have not gone to this is because it is really expensive, (laughs) really expensive. And actually, yesterday, I again pulled up my lovely friend Google and found out that they do have they are having it this year. It's in late October 2023. And Prices per person per room start at $810. That's for the cheap rooms. <laughs> it is the Grand Hotel. I know. they're not. It's not like yeah. the Just OK Hotel right. on Mackinac Island. That's right. That's right. <laughs> Insight, uh, we are open to some in-kind trade. Happy to advertise uh, the fan club for some tickets to the show. You let us know. Um, but I think that's as good a way as any to lead into talking about this film. If you are ready to go. Let's do it. Let's talk about our feature presentation. (laughs) 
Our feature presentation, of course, is Somewhere in Time from 1980. The film doesn't start in 1980, however. We start out in the year 1972, May specifically. Why do they make it so specifically in May? I hadn't thought about that until just this second, <laughs> but apparently it's very important that it's May of 72. Yeah. Maybe it's because, and we'll get to it, but maybe it has something to do with the title of the play that we're going uh, to be introduced to. Right. I don't know. We're going to be talking about springtime, things like that. Uh, whatever. Anyway, we start out at a college. I wrote it in my notes as Millfield College. I, I may have that name wrong or something, but it's a college. It's in yeah. Chicago. A bunch of people hanging out. There's some disco music happening. and it's Super groovy. And we hear people talking about various things like, you know, the war in Vietnam and more specifically about a play that they have all just watched. And it turns out that it is a play that's written by the young Richard Collier, which is Christopher Reeve. Mm-hmm. And I think they're celebrating the successful run of this brand new play, right? Yeah. I don't think they ever say, is he is he a student? A student put on play? Is he a... It's hard to tell. Yeah, I don't think he's a professor or anything. No, it feels like maybe he's a student, but he doesn't look like a student for no. sure. He's way older. <laughs> Definitely not. He's busy because he's getting pats on the back and congratulations all over the place, including from a movie critic played by uh, William, William H. H. Macy, Macy, which I think was maybe one of Macy's first on-screen appearances. Yes, I read about that, but I don't think I recognized him in there, but I wasn't looking closely enough. I only found that out on the IMDb and then went back and had to look. So he's getting pats on the back. Hey, great play. He is making sure to introduce everybody to his current girlfriend, who we learn is named Shelley, and the agent of his comes over and says, hey, this play is so good, it's probably ready for Broadway. Woo! Everybody claps, celebrates. It's a happy time, but the happy time is immediately undercut by the fact that sitting in the dark or half darkness... In In this room that's not big, I want to say. (laughs) Like, this is one of my quibbles of this movie. This is not a big room, and there's just this hugely dark patch in the back. And sitting in the hugely dark patch, which no one to this point has seemed to notice, is an old woman in, to me, what looked like a Victorian dress and a veil. (laughs) And it looks like she's haunting the theater. Yes, like all black. Yeah, it's weird. But she's just chilling, sitting back in the dark and watching everything going on. But after a moment or two, we see her sort of glide her way from the darkness, wherever she is, right up behind Richard and tap him on the shoulder. Oh, my gosh. I just don't like this scene. I mean, I get it, and it is romantic, but I just think it's not... It doesn't come off very well from a filmic perspective, from my completely amateur, completely opinion. No, it doesn't come off okay, well. Okay, <laughs> good. Because, again, this is not a big room, and this woman glides through, as you say, so she's walking slowly. By no means is she, like, barging her way in. No. But she chooses to just cut right in the middle of a small group of people and just arrow straight to Christopher Reeve. When you can very clearly, in this strange upward angle that the director or the cinematographer have chosen for this scene, she could have very easily just walked around. There's lots of room. Yeah. It's fine. It's more dramatic it's this more way. It's more dramatic this way. I get it. But I think add a few more extras because it just looks <laughs> very not full of people right there. I'm with you on this isn't the strongest opening I've ever seen to a film. But the opening, it's like the opening opening of it to me is actually pretty strong in that you come in in mid-conversation. It feels real. Yeah. Like there's some there's some real things going on. We hear conversation under darkness. We see a bunch of people milling about. She sort of takes a minute to figure out that Christopher Reeve is who you're supposed to focus on. That feels like this is a 70s movie. I think it's the introduction of the old woman. It's, right, but it's That's it's when we weird. hit that moment where we get the cut to see, you know, this Scooby-Doo villain or whatever <laughs> sitting in the back of the theater. 
that it switches for me from feeling like a movie to feeling like television. Yeah, I agree with that. It's fine. It's fine. It is. Well, I'll is. talk a lot about the whole movie television thing, I think, as we go through, because that, that occurred to me a lot. But she's there. She comes up behind him. She taps him on the shoulder. The reason she's tapping him on the shoulder is to hand him something, mm-hmm. stuff something into his palm and says the words, come back to me. Which, when you and I were watching this a few days ago, immediately made us both, I think, separately think Janet Jackson, which was really fun. (laughs) Which also shows our age. (laughs) Come back to me. So yeah, um, shout out to fellow Gen Xers. Oh, now I have to pay for that song. Sorry. Sorry. (laughs) She puts it in his hand. She says, come back to me, which means nothing to anybody, including Richard. Yeah, no hi, by the way. No hi, no bye. Nothing. nothing. And then gives him sort of this wide-eyed, you know, basset hound stare. Teary. And then disappears. Like just turns around and bolts and Richard opens his hand. Inside of it is a gold pocket watch. Nice gold pocket watch. Beautiful. But basically tells everybody, yeah, great. I got a pocket watch. I have no idea who this woman is. Never seen her before in my life. Yeah. It's weird. And it would have been to me less weird somehow if she would have just done her thing and disappeared. But she doesn't because we follow her. We don't stay Uh. with Richard. We follow the old woman and find her sitting in the back of some car, fancy car that she's getting a ride in. She's still crying and and weepy in the back of the thing. But the car itself pulls up in front of this giant hotel called the Grand Hotel, which, uh, as you mentioned, is on on Mackinac Island. It's a real hotel in Michigan. And then we follow her as she goes into her room and she doesn't say another word. Those four words come back to me are the only things that this actress says. So she follows by into her room. She passes another woman and the woman's like, hey, how was the play? Her How's roommate, it going? I guess we're assuming. I guess so. It's, again, very hard to tell who this is and yeah. what's going on. So she walks right through, shuts the door in this kind woman's face who was just wondering how her friend is doing. Mm-hmm. Did she have a good night? Mm-hmm. Shuts the door, kind of a dream. And she sets a record of Rachmaninoff's Rhapsody on the theme of Paganini, opus number 43. Okay, so let's pause here. Like you said, she walks in the room, she sits in a rocking chair and turns on a record player, and the record that's playing is this song, uh, which you said is called Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. Mm-hmm. Those who listen to subgenre, that's going to feel a little familiar to them because we actually just talked about this exact same song in Season 3, Episode 1, Groundhog Day. It shows up there, too. And did you note that that was potentially a nod to Somewhere in Time? I did. I did. Uh, It it is a little Easter egg that is hidden in Groundhog Day, if you know to look for it. And it comes from, it's a direct link to this movie. That was obviously the choice, right? It had to be. It cannot be a coincidence. Now, if you haven't heard the song, and I didn't get a chance to play it when we were talking about Groundhog Day, but I am going to play a couple of seconds of it here, enough not to get sued, but we're going to play a couple (laughs) just so you can understand, because this song. It's one of the characters in the film. Absolutely. All right, here you go. Okay, so that is 
Rhapsody on a Theme of Paganini. It is by Rachmaninoff. Rachmaninoff. Mm -hmm. And she's sitting there listening to it. We think for the moment, oh, sweet music. She's going to sit and listen to it. It's going to come back. Yeah, Just know that. She's sitting. She's looking out a window toward a lighthouse in the distance. And she's holding the program to this play that she just saw, which we find out is called Too Much Spring. I hate this title. (laughs) Irrationally so. I don't know why. It's just I hate this title. For a movie you like so much, you sure hate a few things about it. No, I really, really, really do. It's so funny. I I feel like I loved this movie, but I just have a lot of like ugh sighing about stuff. We leave the old woman who we we have no idea who this woman is, but we we're gonna call the old woman for now. We we leave the old woman sitting in her rocking chair, listening to her Rachmaninoff, staring out the window at a lighthouse in the distance that's somewhere at the edge of the promontory. It's somewhere in time. Ah. Uh, that's where it is. That's where it is. Sorry. And we leave it, her and the world for eight years. We come back eight years later, but this time, instead of being in Michigan, we are in Chicago. Mm-hmm. Uh, Richard is in his apartment, a really nice apartment. He must have been some, you know, writing some great plays in those eight years because he's making bank. Yeah. It's great. The view is astounding. So he has an apartment in Chicago, but he doesn't seem happy about it. He seems mm-hmm. very frustrated. Uh, something is, is bothering him. And so he does what all of us want to do when we feel like we can't be where we are, which is he packs to go on a trip. Oh, by the way, and he drives down Lakeshore Drive in his convertible. Who has convertibles in Chicago most of the time? He must have... Ferris Bueller? Well, yeah, but come Cameron, on. I guess. Cameron. Cameron's dad. Cameron's dad. Let's be specific. That's okay. who has it. And they drive well, down Lakeshore Drive in that film as well. Well, I mean, where else are you going to drive in Chicago but I Lakeshore Drive? Agreed. There are no other roads. Anyway... <laughs> <laughs> so he packs up to go on a trip. You know, he's riding the elevator down to leave, and a guy says, Hey, when's your next play coming? And he's like, I don't know. So he is maybe having some writer's block, maybe not able to produce what he needs to produce. And so he needs to get out of town. We don't know where he is going at first. I don't think I don't he think, knows. Yeah, I think he's just heading out and trying to see where, where the wind takes him. And the wind apparently takes him to an island, out of the state and onto an island, because he gets way far north of Detroit up to Mackinac Island <laughs> and just happens to say, oh, look, the Grand Hotel, and mm-hmm. stops there. I mean, it's eye-catching. It yeah. is big. It's fancy. For those who live on Mackinac Island, please tell me, but is there, like a tourist from Chicago, is there any other reason that they're going to Mackinac Island, really? But to go to the hotel? But to go to the hotel? I don't know. So he says, okay, I'm going to stay at the Grand Hotel. Great. He checks in for the night. He is very quickly introduced to the bellman. Uh, whose name is Arthur, played Mm -hmm. by the actor Bill Irwin, who we are going to come to know pretty well. Bill Irwin and the character of Arthur are kind of what you would expect like like an old West sheriff to look like. like. (laughs) He's got got, like the long white mustache and sun-damaged skin and all that. It's just, he's a cool-looking dude. Yeah, for sure. But he looks at Richard and... You know, is inviting him in and telling him the history of the hotel a little bit as he's getting him settled in his room. But then he turns around and says, you look familiar. Have you ever stayed here before? And Richard says, no, no, this is my first time. I've never been here. But for some reason, Arthur, he's got that little bell ringing in the back of his brain that says, I seem to know you from somewhere. Yeah. And Arthur's been around. He lets us know since 1910. He actually grew up at the hotel. His dad was the desk guy or whatever. Desk clerk or something. Yeah. Yeah. Way way back when. And so he said, oh, I used to play ball in the lobby when I was a kid. And I, I grew up here. So this is my home. Arthur is old. 
but he's very nice. The last bit of that scene that sort of connects us to what came before is Richard walks to the window, looks out somewhere in time, (laughs) and sees the lighthouse, the same lighthouse that the old woman had been looking at Mm -hmm. eight years ago. Yep. And he checks time on the pocket watch that she gave him. Yep. So he still maintained that and kept it with him. So sweet. He's hungry. It's been a long drive all the way from Chicago. (laughs) And so... He goes downstairs for dinner. It's not restaurants not open yet, so he's got to kill some time. And he ends up in the what they call the hall of history of the hotel, which is really just like here's all the old photos. And he walks in. He starts looking at some of the little models and stuff that are of the building, and looking at some other pictures on the wall. And then he turns, and we don't see what he's looking at, but he is struck by something. And the camera just focuses on him for the longest time. And this is something that they'll do a couple of times in the movie, I think, to really good effect most of the time. So obviously something has just entranced him. It could be the red velour wallpaper. I mean, it's top to bottom. It's top to bottom. It's a bold choice. It is. It's gold lighting and red velour wallpaper. It could be that. <laughs> uh, it isn't. What we and he soon see is that there is a framed photo on the wall of a woman, smiling woman. We haven't been introduced to her yet, but she looks very familiar to us if we've, mm. if we've mm. ever watched James Bond movies. Um, <laughs> but she is smiling out at him from the frame, and he is transfixed by this lady in the picture. Who wouldn't be? Because she is so beautiful. I've mentioned this before. I will say it again. You're going to get real bored of me saying this really quickly, but they're all so beautiful. And it does not say beautiful woman on the frame underneath her picture. In fact, it says nothing because the nameplate is missing. And this is frustrating to him because he really wants to know who this person is. Um, but what do you do if you if you don't recognize Jane Seymour right off? Well, you go and you find Arthur, who's been there since 1910, <laughs> and you say, who is this on the wall? And Arthur immediately knows who that is and says uh, it's this lady named Elise McKenna. She's a famous actress. And very famously, she started in a play in 1912 at that hotel at a little theater that's down by the lake on the hotel property. And then basically Richard becomes obsessed, really, like compulsively drawn to keep looking at this photo. So he goes back at every opportunity, thinking about her, unable to sleep, just staring at this picture. It's kind of creepy. I'm just going to say, I mean, it is a little creepy, you know. I want to just lean in and be like, oh, how romantic. But also it is kind of creepy. <laughs> and her character or this this lady in the picture and this actress, Elise McKenna, um, actually based on a, a real life actress named Maude Adams. Maude Adams, yeah. So the background of this is that Richard Matheson, the author, had a similar experience where he was touring, what, I believe an old theater or something like that. I can't quite remember. I don't remember. And saw a photo of the actress Maud Adams on the wall and he was so again struck by her appearance that that was really the inspiration for this book was having him have the same experience really Richard Collier yeah. as Richard Matheson I just made the connection that it's Richard and Richard <laughs> it's Richard and Richard and it's Christopher and Christopher Christopher Reeve Christopher Plummer what amazing Yes, Elise Matheson, she was an actress. There was a play at the hotel. Elise McKenna. Oh, sorry, Elise McKenna. She was in a play in 1912 at the hotel. There was a theater down by the lake where that play took place. Which is convenient for him as a playwright, of course. He's going to be really interested in that. And so he's gotten some answers to who this woman is, but not enough. Yeah. And it starts to wear on him somehow. So 
he goes to the library. He finds the the nearest library he can in town and asks for all of the magazines they have about theater. And of course, you know, he does so at a, at least one point where it's like close to closing time and the ladies working at the library is like, I don't know. I just, I can't. And he does like, will you please do it for me, please? And gives I'm a Christopher, Christopher Reeve. Reeve smile. Yeah. And it works, of course, because he's does. beautiful. And what this is going to do beyond giving him more information about uh, Elise McKenna is he had only intended to stay one night. He told them at the front desk he was only going to stay one night and heading to the library, he makes the decision. Yeah, I'm going to stick around for a minute. Can we also say back up a tiny bit? I don't think we mentioned this when we talked about him getting out of town, Mm. but he's actually he's doing his old writer's block thing. He's in a little bit of a struggle with his career, but it seems like he's also dealing with a broken heart because he mentioned in passing to that man in the elevator who's like, how's the play going? That he broke up with his girlfriend, Shelly, that Mm. we met in that first scene. So I think he's turning that whole like rebound energy toward this picture of this woman on the wall. Oh, that's interesting. I hadn't really thought about that. You could just go to a bar, buy someone a drink, you know. (laughs) You could do that. Have a good time, get over it. But no, he's gotten a little little stalkery. But he's taking that stalkery energy and taking it to the library. So Which I support. Libraries forever. There you go. Finds out as much as he can about this lady, and uh, it still isn't enough. No. But fun fact, fun fact, library fun fact. Yes. Which I, again, thank you to our friends over at IMDb. I did not realize this, but Meg Ryan is in the library scene. Really? She has super short cropped blonde hair. She is seated with her back to the camera across from Christopher Reeve in the library scene where he's pouring over all of these magazines and books and newspapers. Uh And I read this on IMDb and I was like, no, no way. I think it's kind of like that William H. Macy thing where you just have to keep your eyes out. So I did. I rewound the DVD and checked it out. And it is definitely her. You can just barely see her in profile. So fun fact, fun fact. In the library, besides the stuff he finds in the magazines, apparently he finds this book called Famous American Actresses, which is about the blandest title for a (laughs) book I've ever heard, but finds that the writer of that book lives nearby. Her name is Laura, uh, Laura Roberts, played by Teresa Wright and just shows up on her front door to ask for more information, which she is reticent to give. And we recognize her right away because she just happens to be that friend of the old lady. Right. When the old lady was coming home to... Eight uh, years prior. Eight years prior, was coming back to the hotel and passed the roommate. She was the roommate. Yeah. So he says, hey, I'm here to find out some information about Melise McKenna. I know that you wrote the book on her. She says, yeah, I'm not interested in giving any of that out until he shows her the pocket watch. And she is stunned. And she goes, where did you get that? And he said, you know, oh, this woman gave it to me. And she realizes how important she said that was never something that she ever left. Yeah, and and she she gives us the backstory of, A, it disappeared the night she died. Yeah. Which means the night she died was the night that she gave it to Richard. Yep. So she died somewhere right after she went to her room and listened to the music and looked out in somewhere in time. So many coincidences. Mm-hmm. But at that point, she knows that he's the real deal. Right, right. So she brings him inside and lets him go in and check out the room where they had been staying, all that good stuff. Yeah, and a lot of the stuff that she's collected, I guess, of Elise McKenna's over the years, she's got kind of like a little shrine because she's writing books about her and things. One of the things that she has collected is another picture uh, hanging on the wall, this time of what she says was Elise's manager, uh, a guy named W.F. Robinson, who we will meet in a while. She explains that their relationship was not usual 
mm-hmm. that there was something a little off about the relationship, but doesn't really go into much detail beyond that, which is fine anyway, because Richard isn't really listening. Richard is looking at a book. <laughs> and he picks up this book that's hanging out, and it just happens to be a book by his former philosophy professor from Milford College or Mill, Millfield, what I don't know which one it is, by a guy named Dr. Finney. And the book is called Travels Through Time. <laughs> Again, what are these coincidences that are going on here, man? Well, the, the lady, Laura, tells her him that Elise used to read this book all the time. Yeah. So it had some special significance to her, which he latches onto because we're, we're going to see him do something with this information here in a little bit. But before he can do anything with the information, he notices across the room at this lady's house that there is this little model of the Grand Hotel. Little is a, a word in quote, you know, quotes there. That's yeah. true. You could run a model train around it, but it's <laughs> there is a somewhere in time model, which he goes over to, checks out, and lifts up part of the roof to reveal a music box that plays. The Rachmaninoff piece. The Rachmaninoff piece. Again, something strange is happening. Uh-huh. Too many coincidences. And I believe it might be happening somewhere in time. What? <laughs> Thank you, everybody. Good night. Good night. <laughs> Okay, so we have some new information, Richard does, that this woman existed. We know her name. We know where she stayed. We know she was in a play in 1912 at the thing. We know that she was reading a book about travels through time. We know that she is present in this picture in a way that is strange. And we know that she showed up to visit Richard before she died and gave him a watch. She has some sort of connection to him, and he does not know what it is. He does not know what's going on. So he does what he can with the clues that he can and goes to visit uh, Dr. Finney, the guy who wrote this Travels Through Time book played by George Voskovic at Milford College and just poses a question to him. Is time travel possible? Yeah, there's not a lot of preamble here. It's just like, oh, hey, I was here a few years ago. You're my former professor. Hey, is time travel real? And the professor sort of stops and kind of looks at him like, well, what is happening? But that you could tell right away that he is stopped because he has something to say about it. He does. But okay, so this is one of those moments that for me was just like, okay. Yeah. Was Yeah, you wrote the book on time travel, I guess. I think that's the implication here is that, you know, you're an expert on it or whatever. But if that's true, why are you suddenly so surprised that someone shows up and asks you if time travel is possible? (laughs) Surely he's not the first one, like maybe your editor or anyone who ever bought the book, any student (laughs) you've ever had. That's a great question. Maybe this is the first person who seems to have taken it seriously. Maybe. Uh, Yeah, good question. I don't know. This is one of the parts in the movie where I feel like you're supposed to understand that this is a turning point, Mm. like a major moment that explains more of the movie in a way. But I don't think it's done super successfully. I want your opinion from a, a filmmaker's perspective. It gives some necessary information for the rules of the game. You talk about in sci-fi, when you're writing sci-fi or making sci-fi movies, you're obviously going into a space that doesn't exist in real life. And so the rules of real life perhaps don't apply, but people are going to walk into that space only understanding the rules of real life. And so you have to adjust their expectations. So, you know, Star Wars doesn't really exist, but if you, if I show up and I see that, oh, using laser guns is normal, then I go, oh, okay, everybody's going to use a laser gun. I buy it and we can move on. And so you have to establish the rules of the road. Here, Dr. Finney is establishing some rules of the road for the possibility of time travel, the most important of which seems to be location, location, location. Yep. The location is 
is important. And so he talks about this one time where he was in Venice and tells a story about how he was hypnotizing himself to think that instead of being in the present day in this kind of decrepit rundown hotel in Venice, that somehow he had transformed into the 1500s. He had moved back in time. But, but only he, for a second. But then he's very clear about that. He says just a moment. It was like he had a flash of being back in time and that the whole thing was such a trial, such an effort that he found himself completely exhausted mm-hmm. by that being able to do it and says if he had the opportunity to do it again which he says very clearly i don't want to yeah but if i had the opportunity to do it again i think my flaw in what i did was I left things around that would remind me of the present day so I could never fully immerse myself in that time. Ladies and gentlemen, if you haven't seen this movie, A, why are you listening to this (laughs) spoiler-filled episode? But also, B, know that this is important, so keep this in your brain. So, rules of the road. You got to be in the right location. You have to hypnotize yourself. Mm -hmm. And you can't have anything around that reminds you of the present day. Yeah. And now that you know the rules, know that it's going to be hard. And that it's going to make you, it's going to exhaust you. It's going to really tire you out. Yeah, that's what I mean by that. Well, I think if I was a listener to this and I hadn't seen the movie, I would go, Okay, maybe because we, we, we've we've set up an interesting premise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. We have set up a series of clues as to what is coming. We've got a lot of foreshadowing on things that is coming. We've set up beautiful people in beautiful places mm-hmm. and a mystery. Yep. All the makings of, of a good film. Now, how that's going to play itself out, how we're going to feel about it along the way. I think that is another question entirely. And uh, we should talk more about that when we get back. Hey, subgenre listeners, this is Josh Dassel, host of the show you're listening to and founder of Kabunki, the company behind it all. If you listen to many podcasts, I do, then you know at this point or somewhere around here, you expect to hear a commercial or two, you know, ads. This is the time when we hear companies who support a podcast speak directly to their audience. So why aren't you hearing one now? Because this space is still available. Have a business, organization, product, or cause you need to promote? Ask Kabunki how to get your ads in front of our global audience of listeners today. The audience knows about movies. They know about pop culture. And soon, they could know about you, too. Support this podcast and advertise on Subgenre or other popular shows brought to you by Kabunki. Ask us more on the show website, subgenrepodcast.com or at kabunki.com. Kabunki, leave your mark. Hey, you're listening to Subgenre. We are in our third season, episode number two, talking about the film Somewhere in Time from 1980 with Christopher Reeve and Jane Seymour and Christopher Plummer and my guest host, Jennifer Dassel. Hello. How you doing? Doing great. (laughs) (laughs) I am. That was short and sweet. You know, I'm being concise. (laughs) I appreciate the conciseness. This podcast can get long. (laughs) Let's see if we can make it even longer. <laughs> Fantastic. Uh, yeah. Let's right. uh, let's take just a little bit of time. Not too much. Just a little bit of time and let's geek out. <laughs> awesome. In Geek Out, we take just a fun topic and, and kind of talk to or about it as fans. And I wanted today to, you know, we talked about how music plays such a big part in this film. And we'll talk a lot more about that. But so far, this Rachmaninoff piece has played a big 
thing. That Rachmaninoff piece wasn't written for this film. No. Right? Classical no. piece. Totally. It's been around for a good hundred years at this point. But every time I hear it, and apparently every time a lot of people hear it, because it could be used in things like Groundhog Day and people understand what's going on, it is a piece of music that has become synonymous with the film it was in, even though it wasn't written for that film. It becomes sort of a shorthand. A shorthand. Yeah, 100%. And I know that there are a bunch of films in which that happens, where pieces, especially classical pieces, instrumental pieces that have been around for a long time, then become, again, those shorthand, where you immediately think of the movie that they're in before anything else. And I think the primary example, you're nodding. Hold on. And that's the thing I want to to talk about is music that was not written for the movie, but was used in the movie and all of a sudden becomes associated with that movie. Absolutely. And I think you have a prime example of that. So let's talk about a few examples we can think of and see if uh, we can surprise the other. Okay. Number one, I think is probably by far the one that's associated with the movie more than anything. Strauss. Of course. And that is also Sprach's Zarathustra, which really, I mean, no one, I don't think many people could listen to it or should listen to that without thinking about 2001. Yes, that one. Because it's like, how can you not? It's so iconic now. Yeah, the only people who would not associate that <laughs> specifically with that film are people who have not seen that film and who have been living under a rock right. for the past however many years. I get that maybe if you're a classical music buff who loves Strauss or you play in an orchestra and that's all you do, maybe then you would not think of 2001. But I agree with you. I think it's almost impossible not to have that connection. And it's super different than thinking about movies in which a work is sort of written into it in a way. Like Jaws. Like Jaws. Yeah, exactly. Something that's specifically made for the film. Mm -hmm. And it's also really different than things like Fantasia, where you have a film that's made around the song. Do you know what I mean? Yes. It's like The Sorcerer's Apprentice and Night on Bald Mountain. Those were famous works of music that the movie then was animated to fit around. And that's very different than what's going on in these cases, I think. Yeah, I agree with you. It's going to be hard to come up with one that is as recognizable as also Sparks Zarathustra uh, in 2001, but I'm going to try. I have another that I, I'm wondering if we're picking the same thing. You we have, have not discussed this with one another. No, we, so. we did not get together okay. about this in preparation. So do you want to go first? Or do you want me to go first? Well, I went first with Strauss, so okay. you can go next. The one that popped into my head that was not classical. Mm-hmm. Uh, do you want to stick on classical? You have classical. Stick with I the classical. I have one more classical Stick example, with the classical first. What do you got? Which I think is the Ride of the Valkyries. You know, you think about the choppers uh, coming in in Apocalypse Now. Apocalypse Now, sure. Or if you're one of our kind of generation or anybody who's grown up with Looney Tunes, you either think about Apocalypse Now or you think about Kill the Kill Wabbit. Kill the Wabbit. So, you know, 50-50, I think, on that one. <laughs> <laughs> what was your example? That's a good one. I, had, I hadn't uh, hadn't thought about that one. The one that popped immediately to my head was Steppenwolf's Born to be Wild, oh. which was featured very prominently in Easy Rider. Easy Rider. Absolutely. And so I can't hear Born to be Wild without thinking about Peter Fonda on a motorcycle. Yeah, absolutely. You can't listen to it without thinking about a motorcycle. It's like, that's the motorcycle song. It's the motorcycle song. Totally. 100%. Yeah. That's all I got. That's all you got. <laughs> well, okay, fine. Here, I will do a deep dive that's, again, like a classical piece. Okay. And it has to do with John Barry. It's another movie I've already mentioned out of Africa, which is one of my favorites. Don't come at me. 
it also has problems. I get it. I accept it. Mm -hmm. But there's a wonderful Mozart clarinet concerto in A major, Kershaw number 522, because I am that nerd who knows this. It's the second movement of a Mozart clarinet concerto that features, again, repeatedly in Out of Africa. So, again, we're coming back to this classical piece that ends up kind of like a character Mm-hmm. or a mood setter, mm-hmm. the same way that the Rachmaninoff piece does here, I think. I think the Rachmaninoff piece is more successful in this case, or it means something a little more obvious to the characters, at least. Uh, that doesn't happen so clearly. And out of Africa, it's more just a, a mood setter for, I think, the audience more than anything. But yes. I've got one that may not have a ton of people outside this room that oh. associate it very strongly with a film. But for me, it's associated very strongly with a film, and maybe uh, you too, Aretha Franklin's Chain of Fools. Oh, which is Sneakers. Which is from Sneakers, which is a, a <laughs> film that you uh, talked about with us last season. No, completely. It's it's one of those things where I think if you have a formative moment, and movies I think are especially good with this, where if you hear a song for the first time, really, in a particular setting, that's always what you'll think of. And so I think that was probably the first place that as a preteen or whatever, I heard Chain of Fools mm-hmm. was in Sneakers. So now I can't not see River Phoenix dancing around kind of crazily. <laughs> When I hear that song. Is it a good thing or a bad thing that me as an audience, me specifically, that I didn't come to also Sprach Zarathustra as a classical music fan or as a music fan, period? I don't appreciate it on first listen as a music fan. I appreciate it as a piece of a movie. But you appreciate it. Yeah, of course. the bottom line. Yeah. See, this is the same kind of conversation I have when people ask me about being exposed to visual art in sort of a pop-centric way. So I always get the question about these immersive art experiences. And I think like one of the biggest ones that people understand is the Van Gogh experience, where you're in these rooms full of projections and your emotion is manipulated by music and storytelling and things like that. But I always say... If you had a good time, then I think it's fine. I think that's the most important thing. So if you're having a good time and you're finding that the music and the films mean something to you and that it helps with the mood or the story or whatever, if you're connecting with it, I think it's fine. Okay. I don't know. I'm not a music historian. I'm not a, you know, a music critic. <laughs> oh, I'm not I, a movie I, critic. I, I can criticize lots of stuff. Oh, I, I consider myself a movie critic and, an, and a music <laughs> critic. Yeah. I love it. Music's awesome. Fan. I'm a fan. I was waiting for Tastic at the end of that. (laughs) (laughs) I need more coffee. Sorry. (laughs) This isn't going well. (laughs) Sorry. (laughs) All right, let's talk more about this movie. Okay. When we last left off, Richard had gone to see Dr. Finney, had asked him if time travel was possible. Finney said, you got to be in the right place. You got to clear all the stuff out that's going to remind you of the time you're in. And you got to hypnotize yourself and do all of those things together. And oh, by the way, it's going to make you really tired when you do it. No big deal. It's fine. So Richard has information in hand for the rules of the road of what it is that he's trying to do. So he goes to try to execute on this because he really wants to see if it's possible. And the first thing he does is go to a coin shop. He needs to go and get some coins from 1912 and he needs to basically immerse himself personally into the world as well. So he finds an old suit and an old hat and then starts recording basically like time travel mantras yeah. onto a little Self-hypnosis. Yep, exactly. And so you find him back in his hotel room, shutting the blinds, laying down on the bed, trying to hypnotize himself into going back into time. 
and making sure before he does so that he is clearing his pockets of his keys. He puts away any modern day coins that he can find in his pockets. The alarm clock from the hotel room. Right. All those modern conveniences he gets rid of. And lays on his bed, turns on tape recorder and listens to himself talking to himself saying, you are in 1912. You are at the hotel. You know, you're not in present day. Whatever it is he's saying to himself, but it doesn't work. No, it's not going well. It's super frustrating. And so he goes downstairs, I guess, clear his head or it's a different day or something. He goes down back to the history gallery to see this lady's photo again. And in the process of doing so, notices that under glass, they also have an old guest book and that gives him an idea. So he says like, oh, okay, there has to be another historic ledger from the hotel available. So poor Arthur (laughs) is the middle of the night. Richard goes and storms off to his cottage, knocks on the door. The poor guy comes out in like an old school night shirt. Yeah, Arthur Arthur lives on the ground. You know what he reminds me of when he comes to the door is the grandpa from from, uh, Willy Wonka. Like he. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't know. I don't think it's the same guy, but he totally that's what it reminds me of. Absolutely. He's obviously been sleeping. He's an old man. He needs his rest. Richard, don't bother him. Yeah, but Richard needs information. Richard is not good at impulse control. And and he's obsessive. And obsessive. And says, Arthur, are there old guest registries or anything that I could find? And Arthur says, yeah, they're in the attic. No explanation of how he gets to the attic or how he gets let in or how he's going to get out. And also, this is a big property. Which attic? Which attic? (laughs) But he's in the attic. He's at, we assume that Arthur lets him into the right one. So we find Richard in the attic. He searches around. He finds an old guest book. It just happens to be the one that has Elise's signature in it from back in the day of when she checked into the hotel. But more surprisingly than finding Elise's signature is he finds his own. So that's all he needs. He just needed that confirmation that he did it. He went back in time. There it is, his proof, his signature right there. And not that he went back in time a couple of minutes ago when he was telling himself to go back in time and all that, but that at some point along this timeline, he is going to succeed. It's proof of his success. And that changes everything, I think. Which, you know, now we get into the discussion about, you know, how do timelines operate here? We don't get into should, though, because <laughs> if his signature is already in the book, it means that he has already accomplished the task. It's already done because yeah. there was this record here. And if it's already done, why does he need to proceed past that point? Will his signature disappear from the book if he leaves the hotel right that second? This is not back to the future. It's, it's- kind of back to the future. <laughs> I don't know. (laughs) You're talking to an art historian about how time travel works. This is not a good idea. Yeah. Well, I just I have questions. I I do, too. But I think that's one of the endearing things about this movie is that it doesn't get into it that much. (laughs) Don't 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 look too closely, kids. (laughs) It just happened. Smile and nod. (laughs) (laughs) Smile and nod. (laughs) But I mean, I mentioned this at the beginning. That's actually one of the things I kind of like about this movie for better or for worse. And it might be a little bit on the for worse side is it doesn't get bogged down in the mechanics of it. True. With the exception of like, just surround yourself in an ancient environment and be Mm -hmm. sure not to look at your alarm clock. You know, that kind of thing. (laughs) You don't need a TARDIS. You don't need um, a DeLorean to get you back there. It's all in the mind. I lived in an old apartment for years and tried not to look at my alarm clock and I never (laughs) went back in time. It never worked. But that's Uh, because you didn't have proof that you'd done it, hon. That's true. I needed the proof. And so Um, does Richard. Well, now that he's got the proof, he can return to his room. He can return to his bed. He can lay down again and try again knowing that at some point he will succeed. And in doing so, he is able to realize 
possibly what has been keeping him from being successful. Which, it's the tape recorder. It's the tape recorder. <laughs> I sat there the whole uh, the whole damn time watching him the first time going, dude, there's a tape recorder on the bed. Yeah. There's a t- it's a modern thing. You're not going to have a tape recorder in 1912. No. Get rid of it. So, so luckily he comes to that realization yeah. with us. And shoves it under the bed. Yeah. So hides the tape recorder, which apparently is the last thing that is around that should remind him of present day. Uh, there is a television in the room, which we're just not going to talk about, I think. Just throw a blanket over it. It's fine. Yeah, but he doesn't. And <laughs> hiding the tape recorder is enough, but hiding the television, we don't even do that. Yeah, I don't know. Whatever. But he hides it. And when he hides it, he no longer has the tape recorder to hypnotize himself. So he starts to sort of mantra eyes and chant out loud to himself. And after a few moments of doing that, voila, the room begins to change. I kind of love this part, though, I have to say. I don't know. There's something very gentle and something strange. The The music goes into these minor keys. It's kind of weird. And you see these little flashes where all of a sudden the curtains change or wallpaper appears on a kind of flat, plain painted wall. And so you start getting these little glimpses that kind of flicker in and out really quickly. And then we land on Richard's face looking kind of relaxed, laying on the bed. And then the light changes. Well, he goes into doodle land. Yeah. And like you said, opens his eyes. Things mm-hmm. are a little blurry. Mm-hmm. As they start to come into focus, we get a bit of of sort of what happened at the beginning of the movie, which is hearing sounds before understanding where we are. Oh, yeah, and yeah. And in this case, we're hearing horses yep. outside. And he opens his eyes and poof, he's in 1912. He made it. Ta-da! He's very excited. But, but. But he's in his room but in 1912, that's not his room. In 1912, that's not his room. It's <laughs> someone, someone else's, else's room. room. <laughs> so he's he's waking up in someone else's room in 1912, and that is a problem because yeah. the person whose room he's waking up in is a woman. And she's not fully dressed. And she's not fully dressed. She's not like walking around naked or anything, but she is definitely um, in her underwear, 1912 style. He runs himself to a closet to hide while she's walking through the apartment and ends up seeing her for a second, realizing what's going on, and deciding he really needs to make an escape, which he starts to do only to be foiled by the front door opening and the woman's <laughs> husband walking in. Yeah, as you happen. But this part becomes kind of slapsticky. In a fun way, though, I yes. don't think it's a weak part of the movie. I actually really like this part. So he has to come up with a way to hide, you know, behind the various furniture in the room. With his head sticking out over the top of the chair. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's a tall guy. He's very tall. <laughs> He's this is Superman. not a short person. I know. <laughs> they, but I... <laughs> they weren't very observant in 1912. Go ahead. They, they don't have to be. She was in her underwear. Her husband was True. mad about something. and they get in a fight. So it just allows him that perfect moment of escape. And so he's able to run out. um, But in running out, he slams the door behind him, which gets the (laughs) attention of the husband who comes out into the hallway looking for who slammed the door. Richard essentially turns on his heel and pretends to be a passing hotel (laughs) guest and says, oh, yes, I saw who slammed your door. It was a young boy and he ran that way. In a strange, very affected, formal accent like that, which is really funny. So I actually think there are some moments of comedy that Christopher Reeve pulls off pretty well in this movie. He does, and you're right. There are two of them, I think, Mm -hmm. in this scene, and one of them is that moment where he's talking to this guy saying, hey, the boy went that way, and wants to continue the conversation, and the the husband, like, slams the door (laughs) in his face, which is very reminiscent of a scene in Superman, where as Clark Kent, he gets the door slammed in his face. Uh, I can't remember what the scene was, but, but it felt very Clark Kent. The other is while he is hiding in the room and is behind this chair, 
and the people are arguing. They're arguing out loud with one another, and he is commenting out loud <laughs> on either how quickly they should get this over with or that, you know, whatever it is, yeah, but, yeah. but he's making these these wry comments. It's funny. He's really funny. Okay, so he's made it out of this woman's room. He's made it away from her husband and has to find not his room yet. He's going to find Elise's room, which he knows which room she's in from having seen the register where, where she signed her in. And so he is approaching what he expects to be her doorway and practicing what he's going to say to yeah. her. So he does the whole like, hello, Miss McKenna. Hello, Miss McKenna. You don't know me, but you will. Just over and over acting out his lines, essentially. And knocks on the door. And who answers but... Not Elise. Not her. I actually really love this woman, I've got to say. (laughs) I find her amazing. She's this like brash... um, She's supposed to come off as French. Her name, I think, is Genevieve. But she's this older actress with bright bright bubblegum pink hair. Yeah, Edra Gale is the name of that uh, that actress. Gale. Yeah, she's got a weird accent, though, so I, I wonder if she's, like, Germanic or um, what her, her background is, but she's supposed to come off as French because she's talking about and, like, you know, have you ever seen a, an actress en déshabillé, you know, like, in the state of undress? Because she is kind of like that other lady that we ran into that Richard woke up in her hotel room, so she's a lady who's not in her formal outfit yet. But she's all, like, kissy-kissy face. She's wonderful. Pink. She's Pink awesome. hair and all Bright that. pink hair. Yeah. She's coming up to Christopher Reeve's character and being like, mwah, mwah. <laughs> Which, yeah. I mean, who wouldn't? Who wouldn't? So I get it. Fun thing about Edra Gale, she was born in Chicago. Oh, okay. Not um, Germanic. Not Germanic. <laughs> Sorry. There are a lot, of, a lot of Germans in Chicago. Yeah. Shout out to the Germans in Chicago. Yeah, hey, hey. But has an interesting career in that one of her earlier, actually her first appearance on screen was in 63 in Fellini's Eight and a Half. Really? Yeah. Interesting. So she was she was in Eight and a Half. She was in The Graduate. Huh. Just a small, you know, looks like a small part, a woman on the bus in, in The Graduate, and eventually all the way to being in Somewhere in Time, which I believe may have been her one of her last or her last movie role, which was in 1980. Wow. Gidget Goes to Rome, I believe, was also on her resume. That doesn't even sound real. <laughs> <laughs> so, yes. So she she answers the door. No, Elise is not here. I don't know where she is. Are you sure you don't want to spend time with me instead? <laughs> Let's back up. Because is that her that answers the door? I don't think so. I think it's the dressing maid. Now that we've talked all the way about Edra Gale, I think it's the the dressing maid who answers the door the first time and says she's not here. I don't think he meets Genevieve until he goes backstage at the theater. Oh, I think you're right. Okay, this is my fault. All right, so Back forget up. everything that we just said, and then we'll just cut and <laughs> paste it in. Yes, yeah, we'll cut and paste it in later. But no, he finds a woman in the room. Elisa's not there. Yeah. She doesn't know where Elisa is. So uh, Richard goes back down to the hotel lobby, and in the lobby runs into a small boy. Who's playing ball. Big red ball, big, you know, sort of straight banged, old timey looking boy in short pants. Mm -hmm. And we come to find out that this is Arthur as a little kid. Yeah. And it's very sweet because I think a couple of times we'll run into him, but it seems like, you know, he's having a little bit of a hard time. His dad's telling him to stop playing in the lobby. His balls annoying the people, you know, and Richard takes a little shine to him because he recognizes him in that way of, you know, growing up to be the old guy, Arthur. And so he's very gentle and sweet with him. It's sweet. I love it. The kid's very cute. Yeah. Big saucer eyes. Big saucer eyes. Big blue eyes. And he's getting in trouble from his dad, who is I don't know that they ever say the guy's name, but he's just he's his dad, who's the desk clerk, who is played by the actor John Alvin, who, among other things, was in one of my favorite World War Two movies of all time, Objective. To Burma uh, with Errol Flynn. Good resume on him. But he 
gives some directions, I think, to the theater. Oh, the theater's down by the lake. And so Richard heads off to the theater to see if he can find Elise. Once he gets there, he sees that at the theater, it's very busy. Everybody is in rehearsal for this upcoming performance, and no one wants to talk to him to tell him where Elise is. They're a little rude. It's fine. They're busy. I get it. But, you know, they're They're, all kind of rude and yelling at him and like, what do you want kind of situation. They're actors. Yeah, it's very dramatic. I get it. (laughs) It's fine. He finds his way backstage somehow, ends up knocking on a dressing room door. This is where he meets Genevieve. Right. Who gives him the kissy faces and everything. Right. Yeah. And tells him, if you want Elise, she's down by the lake. Taking a walk. Doing a little stroll. Richard is homing in on where Elise may be. She is now down by the lake. So he walks out next to, and I don't, I don't know, that. do we ever say what lake? Is it one of the Great Lakes or something? Michigan? Sure. Why not? Holmes. Sorry. Huron, Ontario, Michigan, Erie, <laughs> and Superior. Holmes. Hey, good job. Thank, Thank you, you, elementary school. <laughs> I was just about to say that. Yeah. <laughs> She's down by the lake. He goes to find her. He finds her standing Amongst all of these very Victorian-looking people hanging out on the beach. But can we back up for a minute and talk about the reveal? Because just like in that Hall of History where he's looking at her picture for the first time and really seeing her, we don't see her right away. And she's revealed only in little snippets. So first we see him looking out over the lake, but he's standing in front of like a window or the door. So we only see her in reflection, mm-hmm. just barely. And it looks like like a gorgeous sunset in the window. But then, of course, the sun is not setting over the lake. So, you know, it's dramatic. It's very dramatic. And then we finally see her just in snippets as she's walking kind of along the shore. Yeah. We see her through the trees. So we don't see her face or her head on until a good 30 seconds or so. But we do have these images of him walking toward her and the camera is on him face on as he's approaching her. It's kind of weird, but it's also really nice the way that they very slowly lead you into this introduction of Elise McKenna, the character. It's one of the gauziest camera shots I have ever seen ever. It's just hazy and no one has wrinkles and it looks what if you were going to teach how to create a sort of storybook feel whatever an old photo feel or whatever for a movie this is the shot you would show people and go something like this but just a little less (laughs) yes and then of course you have a john barry score which is just like so lush and just swelling in this moment yeah so it's it's quite the epic first meeting I want to talk about this first meeting. Before we get there, I want to talk about his walk to see her because he's walking across the grounds at this hotel. We're passing all of these people out for their strolls in the afternoon by the lake and everything before he sees her. And we're seeing it through this gauzy lens that makes everything feel almost like you're walking into a painting. Right. Now, I had read and I have heard, though I'd have no way to verify, that's why I'm asking you, that the people that are milling about are standing in positions from famous paintings. True or not true? I think it's true because I I can see what you're saying and what they're going for. But whether or not there's specific paintings that have been called out, I haven't yet been able to verify. I've also Googled around for this to try to find answers. But yeah, it says like they're trying to look like Claude Monet paintings or Alfred Stevens paintings. What you're thinking of specifically is the Sunday in the Parc of La Grande Jatte that's at the Art Institute of Chicago. 
said is by George Surratt that if you know movies that you're thinking about right now as being part of Ferris Bueller's Day Off. Yes. So, yeah, I think that is definitely part of it. And I think it's very intentional. But it also isn't so obvious. You know, it's not like a a stage setup where you would immediately say that guy looks like this person from this painting. And this person's obviously there was really only one part where I was like, okay, I could see that looking exactly like this particular Claude Monet where a woman is holding an umbrella. That was the only moment that I got a specific callback, a mental picture in my mind from art history. So I think it's more about mood and mm. feeling here and less about a specific art reference. Got it. It does feel it like works. it works. It yeah. works. It feels like you're in a painting. It certainly sets a, a, t- a feel of a time and place. And he walks through all of this, like you said, to see little bits and pieces of her until finally they are face to face and they lock eyes and you see and feel this instant connection. And she asks him a question. Is it you? Is it you? But she says it so fast that apparently she fumbled it and they had to go back. I don't know if they had to do ADR or or what happened, but it sort of sounds like, is it you? (laughs) Is it you? Is it you? Yeah. Is it you? Is it you? To which he responds, yes. (laughs) I I guess it's me. I don't know. But yeah, he's like, sure. When someone asks you if you're a god. You say yes. Right. There is a connection. Whatever whatever it is she's asking, whatever it is he's answering, there is a connection, and she is shocked by his answer. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But we don't have time to linger on this very long because they are very quickly interrupted by a person who, if we've been paying attention, we recognize. We've seen before. We've seen before, and it's W.F. Robinson who is the person who Laura, the author, had said was her manager that she has some sort of odd relationship with, yeah. who is played by? Christopher Plummer. Christopher Plummer. Chris and Chris. Chris and Chris. And he is an imposing figure, and he is here to take her to dinner only her, not Christopher Reeve. And so I love how he basically escorts her off and then does the whole like, don't look, he's still following us. He's watching you. It's it's weird. It's weird. He's just like strolling along behind him, like keeping a distance. <laughs> yeah. He's like he's like a bad cop tailing a robber in a movie. <laughs> like he's definitely back there. Yeah, he's back there. What do we do? Yeah, it's fine. Just keep walking. It's fine. Eventually, Robinson knows he needs to do something about it. So he sends uh, Elise on to dinner And he goes back and has words with Richard and basically says, what are you doing here and what do you want? It's obvious and it becomes, I think, even clearer as we move through the movie that he's super overprotective of Elise. But it does feel like there's something more going on. And so we can talk about that, I think, in a little bit, too. He's very protective, protective to the point of saying, look, are you a guest at the hotel? Yes, I'm a guest at the hotel. If you don't leave her alone, I'm going to ask for you to be evicted yeah. from the hotel. He's not the nicest of people that we run into. He's not at all. But he's not like a mustache twirling villain either. I think he's sort of played like he's supposed to be the villain. I don't know. I, yeah. I, I think I feel like his character is kind of underdeveloped. I would agree with that. Yeah. I, I don't know. I think he could very easily slip into mustache twirling villain. Yeah. But I think they give him some moments that undercut that villainy. Right. So we'll see those. This is not one of them. But as he's leading Elise to dinner, she gets one last look backwards. Mm-hmm. To see uh, Richard hanging out, you know, watching her go. And we can tell that she is intrigued, but has to go. Yeah. So he follows them to dinner. Of course he does. He's been following them on the path. He's and like a little retriever. He's, he he's follows so them to dinner. Dinner, of course, is in this grand hotel. So it's a big grand experience. There's lots of people everywhere and things in the restaurant, which is how he's able to slip into the restaurant, just pretending he's one of the guests. As he is looking for Elise, 
He runs into Genevieve again. <laughs> Big, Love brash, pink-haired Genevieve. The first person to let him know, but not the last, no. that the suit he is wearing, which he has chosen as his reminder that he's in 1912, his suit's at least a decade out of fashion. <laughs> yeah, and I mean, she's nice about it, but she is for sure laughing at him and his appearance. But, you know, I get it. At least it's better than having something that's moved him forward in time. That's- yes, not helpful to keep him in that mental zone. So at least it's older. It's sort of like when we do throwbacks to the 60s in dressing or or people of a current age do throwbacks to the the 80s 80s. or the 90s, right? Yeah. It's like, dude, that's it's not from the year you think it's from. (laughs) But anyway, he finds Elise finally on the dance floor. I think Genevieve takes him over and drops him off and says, here's Elise. And so he cuts in and they get to dance for a short minute, which means he gets to have a bit of a conversation with her about, hey, how are you? My name's Richard. But that's all he gets to do because uh, here comes the manager again. Yeah. And so he, you know, basically says, like, it's time to leave and tries to escort Richard out, at which point, you know, Elise goes with him, kind of disobeying her manager. Basically. Yeah, against Robinson's better yeah. wishes. And then she continues to go on to ask why, following really in Robinson's footsteps of saying, why are you here? What is it that you want from me specifically? Yeah. And then he does the moment of saying, like, well, I'm a playwright. And she goes, oh, of course. Yeah. You Uh know, it's like you wanted me to be in your play. I get it. Okay, whatever. He is not interested in having her in a play. He's interested in seeing her again and asks her, when do I get to do that? Yeah, I want to get to know you, basically. And she tells him, I don't know. Don't know when you're (laughs) going to get to do that again. But you get the sense that it wouldn't be the worst thing in the world as far as she's concerned if there was another time where they met. Yeah. Although she doesn't let that onto him. But she's definitely intrigued. She's definitely intrigued. They're both interested in one another, at least. Right. Yeah, for sure. So back in her room then, Elise, with Robinson, she asked him, is this guy the one? Yeah. Right. We get this coded thing that they've talked about before that we don't quite understand. But she asked him if he's the one and he tells her only she knows. Yeah. Only she can tell. And we're left going, huh? Here's the part that I find really frustrating is the whole like, huh, is never really fully explained or at least fully explained well in my book. Yeah. I've seen this movie a ton of times, right? A lot of times. And I'm still really frustrated and a little bit confused about two things. One is the who's the one that they're talking about? What is this person that they've had a background about, a relationship about? And then the other part is that whole like they have a confusing, interesting relationship between Elise and the manager, Robinson. I feel like neither of those are really explained or fleshed out enough for us to come to our own logical conclusions. I don't know. I still feel like I'm confused on both rounds. To me, it's made to feel initially like one of them is aware of time travel. Yeah, there's some sort of supernatural element going on. and But it doesn't play out. It doesn't play out. No, it's really kind of weird. In the book, I think that it's made a little clearer mm. in that Elise mentions that she met with two different psychics who have both said that she will meet a man at a particular place in a particular time. And that ends up being Richard in the book. Uh, but that is not at all mentioned in the movie. It doesn't come across like that at all. Oh, I would have loved that scene in this movie with her going to see an old psychic. Yeah, I know. Yeah, see, that would have been great. a lot more sense instead of there being this, I don't know, it's with their relationship. There's something odd there. And is he the one? I don't know. It doesn't work for me. It doesn't work for me either. But uh, there we are. It's fine. It's fine. That is not the main issue here. Yeah. So having been thrown out of the dinner, Richard doesn't have a room yet. No, because he's not at the date where he was supposed to check into this room that's yeah. written in that ledger, that hotel ledger. So 
He had to sleep on the porch. He, sl- he sleeps on the hotel porch, which no one seems to care or mind. You know, I, I guess I ass- think someone would notice. Well, assuming maybe he had too much to drink or something. Mm. He's he's just laid out. And when we say porch, it's it's <laughs> like this is veranda. a football field long veranda yeah. with, you know, the nice chairs and everything and big pillars and what he's doing. OK. Yeah. He's so fine. long as it wasn't too cold, he's doing OK. But uh, he awakens on that porch, has to put himself together, goes back to Elisa's room, knocks on it. And this time she does answer. Looking beautiful. Looking beautiful. She's just stepped out of bed, fully dressed and made up. And Her hair is perfect in this beautiful braid. She's uh-huh. wearing this gorgeous white nightgown that is the nightgown of my dreams. <laughs> when I'm walking through fields of wildflowers. Uh-huh. He asks her to breakfast. This is the cutest scene in the whole movie. Yeah. Hey, do you want to go to breakfast? And she says, it's too early for breakfast. Because well, it's like 6 a.m. <laughs> whatever it is. Do you want to go to breakfast? It's too early for breakfast. How about lunch? Well, no, I can't go to lunch. I'm rehearsing for my play. Yeah. Then come walk with me, he says. So cute. And so he finally basically wears her down and she does this little like open the door, close the door, open the door, close the door and give more information every time. So she says, "Okay, fine, I'll do it. Closes the door and says one o'clock, closes the door, (laughs) opens it up. Don't be late. Closes the door. And you talk about this being a cute scene. He has, I think, what is a memorable line or memorable delivery of a line in this doorway, which I can't do, but maybe you can. Yeah, and he moves into dramatic actor mode where he's like, my dear lady, I will go mad if you do not go with me. It's, I can't do it, but it is so cute. It works. It's Christopher Reeve acting, playing a person acting who can't act. Yeah. <laughs> and, and it is. It's really good acting. It's way over the top, but it's meant to be. But it works. But it works. So well, and it's so sweet. And it's tongue in cheek, too. Like, obviously, he's kind of doing these exaggerated facial expressions. Yeah. It's, it's wonderful. Yeah. And then when she closes the door, finally, after she's agreed to go walking with him at one o'clock, then he gets his final line. And he says, she's crazy about me. He does that little, like, sly smile. It's sweet. It works. It works on me, at least. Later on, Robinson is going to find Richard eating his lunch, sitting outside the hotel, hanging out, and is going to take the opportunity to confront him and basically, again, let him know that he is not welcome either with Elise or at this hotel. And Robinson will make sure of both of those things. This fine establishment. But Richard don't care. Richard's here for Elise. He's not worried about Robinson. He's going to go check into the hotel and get the room that he is supposed to be in to be in the correct place for the state so that he can be in the room register, which he saw anyway in the attic, which I don't understand why he had to go through all this if he's already in the register, but go ahead. (laughs) It's fine. So he goes up there, officially checks in, and he tells them, you know, I want this room. No, no, he doesn't say that. No, he doesn't. He just checks in. He just checks in. Expecting he's going to get the right room key. But he doesn't. But he doesn't. At least not right away. Not the one that was written in the register when he had looked at it in the attic. Just like room 416 or whatever was the room that was assigned to him in the ledger. And so the guy at the front desk checks in and then I think it's the father or whatever who comes through or maybe it's a different manager. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Somebody checks him in in the wrong place. Somebody else corrects the mistake and says, oh, no, no, sorry, that room key that we gave you, that room is not available. Here is a room that is available and it turns out to be the right room to which he's then able to give a a big relief sign. Yes, absolutely. Yep, yep, yep. And then, you know, he tries to help things along by saying, you know, oh, I'm checking in at exactly 9, 18 a.m. or Uh whatever it said. So and the guy's like, yeah, thanks. Great. (laughs) Thanks for being so helpful with the time. And while all of this is going on, little Arthur Arthur. has his ball taken away by the father and is sad and sitting over in the corner crying about it. And Richard is able to make him feel better at the end by returning the ball. He steals it back from behind the desk and gives him the ball. (laughs) Very sweet. It's very sweet. I know it's sweet. I don't love that part of of the thing, but you know, that's just me. 
Yeah, yeah. You have no heart. Honey. I have no heart whatsoever. <laughs> so she's agreed to meet him at one o'clock. One o'clock rolls around. And so they are trying to walk together outside the hotel. But, and, and by they, I mean Richard and Elise. But they are followed very closely. This time, instead of it being Richard tailing Robinson and Elise, it's Robinson tailing Richard and Elise, mm-hmm. kind of keeping his distance behind and watching and, and trying to see what's going on. So they have to make an escape, which they do by jumping in a horse and buggy and taking off. Yeah, because very famously, Mackinac Island, there are no cars allowed. <laughs> Yeah, that's right. Which is something we haven't mentioned before, uh, then and now. So, yeah, horse and buggy is the way that people got around around the hotel, with the exception of emergency vehicles today. But whatever. That sounds kind of nice. I know, right? Let's go there. What if you're allergic to horses? You're kind of screwed. <laughs> well, I am. <laughs> you're kind of screwed. <laughs> I'll take a Claritin. It's fine. <laughs> they hop in the horse and carriage. They take off. They ride it down to somewhere on the lake and wander around and buy peanuts. What if you're allergic to peanuts and horses? You're screwed in this movie, this hotel. (laughs) They buy peanuts, they take a walk, and they are watching people painting, do I say this right, on plein air. Oh, good job, honey. Uh uh So proud of you. Standing out and and painting the lake and the flowers and whatever is out there, but basically having themselves a really good time. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Very romantic. Having walked the beach, they find themselves out at this lighthouse that everybody's been looking at from the hotel out at the edge of the lake somewhere in time. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he finally, I would have asked this before, but he finally asked her, why did you say, is it you? And And she she says she was expecting someone. Yeah, because Robinson told her so, told her so that someone would come. So again, this is not really explained. <laughs> Does she say more than that? Like, did he just said someone would come, someone would come and change your life? Was yeah, it? and that she should be afraid of him somehow? Right. That's the weird thing. Yeah, I mean, again, none of this is really explained. It's all very loosey-goosey. Uh-huh. For all of them, I think, and for the viewer. Yeah, and she, I can't remember now if it's implied or if she says that he seems to know things before they yeah. happen. yeah. Things like that, which really implies that the dude is a time traveler or something. Or psychic. I don't know. Or a psychic. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's weird. Eh. It's a flaw, I think. Well, he's told her somebody's going to come, that she should be afraid of whoever this person is. Richard says, well, do you believe you should be afraid of me if I'm the one? And she says, no, I don't believe that. I'm not afraid of you. I'm, I'm not afraid of you. Yeah. And so what do you do with the person that you've met? who you're not afraid of is you go rowing on the lake, which is what they do. Except he's not reading French poetry, but it's fine. He's not. But this he is this is another one of those moments where it looked like it's a painting. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Yeah. It's really beautiful. Have we said this enough? It's really beautiful. <laughs> and, and they're humming. He's humming the Rachmaninoff piece, I think, as they're rowing across the lake. And she says something important, which is, oh, that's a beautiful piece. I know Rachmaninoff. Like, I listen to Rachmaninoff. I've gone and seen his shows in New York or whatever, but I've never heard that piece before. And he says, oh, you know, I'll introduce you to it. It's one of my favorites. Uh So it obviously. It had not been written yet. Yeah, exactly. At that point, (laughs) which is why it's she's never heard it, which is why it becomes potentially for her, I guess, later proof positive that he was from the future or whatever, because he was humming tunes that didn't exist yet. I like that. Interesting. So they row on the they went to the lighthouse, they row on the lake, they end up sitting in a gazebo. As you do. As you do. She is cleaning blood from his face because we didn't mention before, he's come out of the hotel to meet her at one o'clock, having tried to shave with a razor, like a straight razor from the old days, and has cut the hell out of his face and so has toilet tissue 
all, <laughs> all over his face from having done that, and she's cleaning him up. Very sweet. And in doing so, sees his pocket watch. And she's like, wow, that's beautiful. I love it. Who doesn't recognize that she's no. the one who's eventually going to give it to him, but no. that's when she sees the watch for the first time. He finally walks her back to her room. She's got to get ready for the show that night. He asks when he can see her again and finds out that that may not be possible because the theater company is leaving that night. Yeah, she's on tour. She's got to go to the next place. So they're not going to have a ton of time left or any time left to meet again. So what he does is he tries to extend that meeting by saying, can I just talk to you for a few more minutes? And by the way, can we talk in your room? Uh-huh. Talk in quotes? Uh-huh. Is that what's happening Do you want to come in for a cup of coffee? Yeah. Come look at my, my etchings. Come look at my etchings. That's Is that right. a thing that anyone knows these days? I'm gonna, I love it, and I think everyone should say that. Also, I legitimately would come to look at etchings. I know. I'm an art historian. I know. I love etchings. <laughs> okay. They go into her room. Of course, it ends up in a kiss. So nice. Right. They get a moment. But blocker that he is... <laughs> Here comes Robinson again, knocking on the door, interrupting the kiss. She has to sort of pretend like they weren't doing anything. With Go this. away, Von Trapp. No one asked you. <laughs> no one asked you, Captain. But that is sort of the end of their time together in her room because Richard skedaddles, leaving both Robinson and Elise together to argue a bit in the room. And before Richard can get out the door... Elise tells him one more thing about where he's going to be that night, which is that she's going to leave him a ticket for the play uh, yeah. at the door, which is essentially saying, I want to see you again. Come to the play. Yeah. And that's where he's going to end up. Yay. We hope. Pretty sure. We'll find out right after this break. Hey, have you listened to the Art Curious podcast? Have you read the book? Have you watched the YouTube channel? No, I just, what are you doing with your life? Art Curious is a universe of content about all things unusual in art. It's the unexpected, the slightly odd, and the strangely wonderful. It's hosted by the lovely and talented Jennifer Dassel. That's my wife. And it's the most bingeable content around. Is the Mona Lisa a fake? Was Vincent Van Gogh murdered? Was Donald Duck responsible for beating the Nazis? And what was the deal with Andy Warhol? Like, really, what was the deal? Listen, read, and watch fascinating stories like these and more when you subscribe today to Art Curious. Visit artcuriousmedia.com for more. Art Curious. Listen, read, watch. Art. Hey, it's Subgenre. You are listening to our episode about the film Somewhere in Time from 1980. I am here with Art Curious host Jen Dassel, my wife, talking about movies and stuff. Hi. <laughs> You're crazy about me. I am. Aww. I am. Um, Should you be? Yes, of course. <laughs> of course. Because how in the world am I ever going to talk fully about this movie or see this movie on my own if it was not for you? I would not have. You would have never seen this movie. Not a chance. Own. Yeah. In fact, it's actually kind of funny that I didn't end up seeing this movie until I think I was in my late 20s, which is sort of shocking because I think I was a very romantically inclined teenager. I believe that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I saw all of those like schmoopy movies in my room crying at night, you uh -huh. know, like having a romantic experience. 
And I never saw this movie until much later. And it was one that my mom likes. You know, it's a mom kind of movie for sure. Mm -hmm. And when I finally saw it, I was like, okay, I don't know what took me so long. And also my mom was shocked. was like, how could you not have seen this movie? I finally did. And now I see the hype. Sort of. (laughs) I I know, I know, I know. I feel like I do. I, I love this movie but accept fully its limitations. Yeah, that's life, man. Yeah. That's when people meet me, they go, I love him fully, but I accept his limitations. <laughs> See, we should all have that kind of friends in our lives, right? We left off before the break with Richard and Elise in her room. They had shared a kiss. Robinson had showed up and busted up the meeting. And Elise had said, I'm going to leave a ticket for you, Richard, so that you can come to the play tonight. Yep, that's yep. that's where we left it. We pick back up with Richard arriving at the play. You know, and this is a big play. When they said there's a playhouse down by the water, I thought, oh, like a little quaint thing. No, this is a legit big, you know, Muppet show size theater <laughs> with people hanging out watching a play. Big curtains, cushy seats, the whole deal. And they are in the middle of the first act or the first scene or the first something. And Elise is doing her actory thing. And it's sort of a lightly comical Comic. play. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But at some point she veers off script. Is she it, seems like she's in this kind of dream. Is it because she sees Richard in the audience? Does she see him? She I don't has know. to. I think she does. Okay. That would it's explain hard to it. tell. It's hard to tell. She goes from whatever is what everyone is expecting her to say, her fellow actors and the orchestra and the director and everything, and goes into this monologue about how she feels about this person that she's in love with. The man of her dreams. The man of her dreams. Yeah, yep. yeah, yeah. Never mentions Richard by name, but mentions every other feeling she has for this person she met three and a half minutes ago. And he's googly-eyed because he knows that she's talking about him. Correct. Very, very romantic. And finishes the monologue by saying that she loves him. And then she would say, and that's what I would say if the man of my dreams were here tonight. And then, you know, transitions back into the play seemingly. To which everyone takes a confused sigh of relief and continues on with with whatever's going on. Robinson is not happy about what has gone on, but the audience is in love with it. Yeah, they think it's all part of the play. And so there's raucous applause after she finishes her grand monologue. Because they think it's all part of it. It's not. So she heads backstage, presumably to change costumes or do whatever else it is that she needs to do, but is instead pulled aside in front of a backdrop by a photographer who needs to take a photo of her, publicity photo or whatever it is for the hotel. And he says, "Okay, I need you to sit here and I need you to look here and the camera is going to be here. And she's doing what he says until the very last second before the photographer snaps the photo and she turns her head And Richard has come backstage and is smiling at her. And she just glows. And they take the picture. They take the picture. As she's looking at Richard. Which leaves us to realize that this picture he has been seeing in the gallery of history of gallery, art gallery. (laughs) That's exactly its title. Is her looking at him. The first time I saw this movie, I think I literally said out loud, like, oh, because I didn't. (laughs) So, so girly, so girly of me. But I didn't expect that. I feel like everything else you can kind of mostly see coming. But that part, for some reason, took me by surprise. And I was just overcome by the romance of it. I really do like that little reveal. It's a nice connection. It's probably too cutesy, but I like it. 
I agree yeah. on both fronts. I think it's it's a little too cute by half, but it is still kind of nice. Yeah, it is. And it ties together the gallery photo from present day, and it ties why maybe he connected so much with it in the first place, mm-hmm. not just that, oh, this woman has me captivated right. because of her photo. It's because, oh, I was there, and she was looking at me when this was mm-hmm. taken, and so therefore. In my notes, I have in all capital letters, romance. <laughs> Daring. Daring. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Call back. Not even to one of my episodes. Nope. But still. Anyway. Later on, uh, after the play is over, after she's had the photo taken, after we've gotten all of that out of the way, Richard is called to meet Robinson. Robinson has sent a message. Hey, Richard, meet me in the gazebo. It can't be good. Could be romantic. It is a gazebo. Uh, I mean, yeah. How dare they use gazebos for non-romantic purposes? That's right. But no, he doesn't want to be romantic. He wants another chance, it seems, to tell Richard a few things. A, still don't like you. B, here's how long I have been with Elise, which Richard already knows. He mm-hmm. studied the history. He already knows that. And how he, Robinson, has like pulled her from obscurity. And he's not there because he's in love with her. He's there because he thinks she's going to be the next great actress of her generation. And he's nurtured that. And he's very proud of that. And how dare you think it was because I love her. I feel like I get it. And thank you for the explication and all that. But Really, the characters in the film just need to learn conversation and uh, to have a better communication is what I mean. There's a lot that's unsaid. I don't buy that answer. About the whole like, I am just doing this because she's going to be a great actress. Yeah. No, it's super underbaked. That's what I was saying about Robinson in general. I just, I don't know. It's not great. I love you, Christopher Plummer, RIP. But however, it's just not my favorite. So you're left to think, okay, is he really being truthful? Is he not being truthful? Does he really love her? There's something there. There is a possessiveness there. Whether it's love or not, there's a possessiveness there. Yeah. Richard buys it, I guess. Yeah. And and says, I get that you're doing it for these reasons, not for the reasons of love, but surprise, you're going to have to do it with me by her side. And he makes it very clear, you know, I'm not looking to end her relationship. I also think that her relationship, her career, I also think that she could be one of the great actresses. That's not in question. That's not what I'm here for. And Robinson tells Richard that he has come to destroy Elise. Robinson knows that Richard is there to destroy Elise, which is another one of these moments to where are you just being melodramatic? Are you being overly possessive? Do you know something about time travel? Yeah. Is it that whole psychic element that we keep gently nodding at but not able to really discuss i i don't know and he caps off this whole thing understanding as he thinks he does robinson about richard he's brought some goons along and the goons jump out of the darkness and beat the snot out of richard it's a very powerful theater manager (laughs) it really is goons all of this is happening while the rest of the play is still going on. And after the play is done, Elise runs off stage looking for Richard, who she expects to be backstage. Well, Richard's not backstage. Richard is getting the snot beat out of him out of the gazebo. No one has seen him. Mm -hmm. She asks around. Nobody has seen where he has been. But Robinson shows back up right about that minute at the door and tells her that Richard has left the hotel and she's never going to see him again. I guess he had other places to be. Lying jerk. But Elise doesn't believe him. Elise has been around this guy long enough that she doesn't believe what he's saying. She tells Robinson out loud. She says, I love Richard. I'm talking about love and my stomach is growling like it really wants to eat. I'm sorry if that's coming across on the mic. Your stomach loves food. But not as much as Elise loves Richard. Oh, good transition. Look at that one. Nice. She tells Robinson out loud, it doesn't matter where Richard is gone. I am going to find him. 
Robinson is kind of taken aback by this because I don't think Elise has ever really stood up to him before about anything, it seems like, but reminds her, hey, in case you forgot, we leave here in one hour. Got to go to the next place for their tour. So good luck finding him in an hour. Mm Mm-hmm. We find Richard again. He again wakes up in a place that is not his room. First, he woke up on the veranda. This time, he wakes up in a horse barn with a horse face over top of him (laughs) snorting into his, you know, into his eyes. He's been tied up into this stable area and kind of just left. Yeah, and I I don't get the intention. Was it just to get him out of the way long enough for them to get out of town? Was that the... I think so. Okay. It's got to be just so a place where Elise wouldn't go looking for him. Yeah. I guess she's not a big horse person. Got it. I don't know. So Richard manages to slip his ropes and get out and runs into the hotel. Arthur's dad, the desk clerk guy, tells him that the theater company has already left. He's too late. He's missed them. They're gone. That was it. And so it looks as if Robinson has accomplished what he set out to accomplish. Richard is heartbroken. Richard is devastated. So he goes basically zombie-like a little bit, kind of, you know, trudging around the hotel and finds himself sitting out on the porch emotional. Yeah, leaning against a column, looking despondent. Yes, but, (gasps) but, gasp, just at that moment, in the distance behind him, we see Elise step into frame. She's been hanging out by the lake or looking for him out by the lake or whatever it is. And she steps into frame, sees him, yells his name, and runs to him for the big sweeping music and embrace. Romance! Romance! I just have to know because, like, Robinson doesn't seem to show up again. Did everyone else leave? Did she stay behind? Did she just say, screw you, Robinson? I think it's got to be the last one because, you know, she's the star of the play. Like, somebody's going to notice Yeah, if she's she's not on the wagon when they take off. (laughs) Yeah. But yeah, apparently she's just ditched the play and and is doing her own thing. Him in focus fully in the foreground and her in focus fully all the way in the deep background. Fun lens tricks. Yeah. It's a fun shot. She runs up. She gives him the big hug and the kiss and everyone is super duper happy. She tells him that he's never going to lose her. I'm going to be with you forever. Yeah. Again, I would like to suspend disbelief and I buy into this and I love this and romance and all that. But I think I'm a cynic at heart and I also want to be like, you've officially known him for like two and a half days in in this movie. It's a real short period of time, but it's it's okay. It's it's true true love. love. Yeah. Yeah. That's what it is. I mean, Snow White gets uh, kissed by a dude in the middle of a forest she doesn't know and wakes up and they live happily ever after. So Good point. It happens. It happens. They go back to her room. So much. To look at her etchings. Yes, they do. They look very closely at those etchings. They look very closely at those etchings. And you get the gauzy coupling scene. Yes, with the lace curtains. Uh You don't see anything except them kind of like leaning together. And then the candle goes out. Uh So dramatic. The train goes into the tunnel. Yep, yep. So on and so forth. Yes, they are going to be together forever, happily ever after. Yeah. Scene. Yeah. Except we... Get some time with them afterwards, post-coital. Which is another very cute scene. I love this scene. Yes. They're like eating, and I can't tell what time of day is. I can't tell if it's early in the morning, if it's late afternoon. There's no real sense, but they're basically starving. Mm -hmm. And they're eating a little picnic on the floor and just chatting together. It's very cute. It's late enough to get room service. Yeah, there you go. And she asks him if he will marry her. Yeah, like right away. It becomes like a, you will marry me, won't you? Well, they slept together. (laughs) Don't they have to get married or something? At this phase in history, yeah. And so he sort of snorts surprisingly and then says like, you know, of of course I will. (laughs) And she says that she wants to be everything to him. So she is dedicating herself fully to him. She's fully invested in this relationship. She's left her play to be with this dude and marry him and, and the whole nine. 
and uh, he tells her that she is everything to him and agrees, yeah, they're going to get married. I think he agrees, right? But I like that she starts asking him questions about his career as a playwright, like what kind of plays do you write? Are there roles for me? So it's obvious that she is devoting herself entirely and I want to be everything to you, but that she also wants to maintain her great career as an actress as well. So I like that. And she's now asking him these things after having devoted her life to him and said they're going to get married. Now she plays the get to know you. (laughs) We should probably get to know one another now that we're committed for life. She doesn't care. She just wants to be with him. She just wants to be with him. Romance, honey. Go with it. (laughs) Romance. So here's the romance. Perfect relationship. Everything has worked out. She, you know, we said we don't know what time of day it is. They've Mm -hmm. ordered food and they're sitting around. She asks him what time it is. He checks the time on this beautiful pocket watch Mm -hmm. again. And she tells him, informs him, nice watch. I am going to buy you a new suit. I'm tired of you in this same damn suit every time I see you. Yeah, this super old suit that everybody says is from like 1900 versus 1910. Yeah, if we remember, it was Genevieve, the actress, Mm. who had told him your suit's, you know, a decade or more out of fashion. And he tells her, I don't know why everybody hates my suit. I love my suit. Yeah, he's into it. My suit's kind of cool. Look, because I've, I've got a vest, you know, it's got this cool waistcoat. Look, it's got all these different little pockets in it that I can put my different things in, including this little pocket here where I can keep my coins. My money. And this is the turning point moment uh, as we start to near the conclusion of this film, where as he's showing her his suit that he's so proud of and the vest, he reaches into that coin pocket on the vest. And unfortunately, he has missed removing one coin. It's a 1979 penny. It's a penny from the time that he started in or is currently in and hypnotized we're not we're we're not quite sure but yes it is the reminder of where he is that he has tried to shed himself of that has allowed him to be in this state for so long it's in his hand and suddenly his whole existence in this time is thrown into turmoil and he starts shaking and like visibly in despair like really in despair like 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 shaking physically sweating it's affecting him and He starts to what appears to be kind of this combination of blacking out and falling into a tunnel. Yeah. And he reaches toward her only to feel like she's moving away from him. And she provides one of the memorable lines. Richard. She screams his name in a way that's really kind of odd. (laughs) She's like she's Peter Laurie. She's she's in Casablanca. Reek. (laughs) But she, this woman of his dreams, is falling away from him Mm -hmm. and he's falling away from her and we don't quite understand what she sees i think on her end i don't know that we ever get a sense of what she sees on her end no idea because we just see it from his perspective where it looks like she becomes a pinpoint at the end of this dark tunnel and if you think about what she sees from his end i mean there's only a couple of options right like he either dies yeah or he falls down a tunnel, fades away, disappears, or fades away, disappears, or does something. But whatever happens has to lead her to buying a book about time travel and being obsessed with it. So yeah. what is it that she sees? I don't know. I don't either. It can't be him dying. That's the thing I think is if no. it's just him dying, she thinks, oh, he died. But But obviously it was something that was bad enough that A, does lead her toward that time travel. So like, what is it specifically about this moment that makes her think, oh, he's a time traveler for sure. Right. I know there's also the Rachmaninoff and blah, 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 but it's weird. But then there's also the part that this is something that we forget about that you kind of have to remember. 
is that this was such a seminal moment in her life that she stops acting. And that was something that Teresa Wright's character says at the very beginning about, you know, something happened there at the Grand Hotel in 1912 and she was never the same again. So either way, it's super traumatic, whatever it is. I kind of wonder, too, when he does whatever it is he does that she sees on her end, he's holding the penny. Yeah. Does he drop the penny? Does he leave the 1979 penny and that's how she sees, oh, he's from the future because it says 1979 on it? No, because she would have brought that back, right? Correct. And we see in the next scene, he's still holding the penny. Ah. And then he drops it out of his hand when he's back in 1979. That's right. So, yeah, so that is what happens is he wakes back up in present day in 1979 and he is beyond exhausted. Yeah, and sweating himself to death. And if we remember back when he talked to his professor, the professor said, I was only gone for a few seconds and it pulled the life out of me. Like I was just exhausted. This guy's been gone for we don't know how long. A few days at least. A few days at least. And he is super duper exhausted and he's back in the present day and he is not in his present day room anymore. He's in his room from 1912, which is now someone else's room in the present day. And so he wakes up in someone else's apartment with the radio playing. We haven't heard radios in Mm -hmm. a very long time, so it's a little bit jarring. So he has to get out of this apartment. He's got to run back to his own room and he does what he can to try to talk himself back into this hypnotic state, but he can't do it. It's too much. I've never hated a piece of currency so much in my life than that (laughs) freaking penny. Oh, gosh. He realizes the more he sits there and talks to himself that he's not going to be able to do it. And the realization is if he can't do that, he's never going to be able to see Elise again. And that breaks him. It's so heartbreaking. It is. It's so sad. It is so sad. And that's when he starts crying. And that's when you see his hand kind of drape over the side of his bed as he's despondent. And his finger opens just a tiny bit and the penny falls onto the floor. Mm. Ugh, I hate it. Well, you hope that he gets better and you hope that he has some revelation or understanding or way to get better. But it just seems to get worse because Mm -hmm. the next time you see him, he's wandering along the water by the spot where they met, supposedly. And this beautiful, picturesque spot where people were painting and walking and dress and he was sitting and eating lunch at not that long ago. There's just trash cans and litter and crappy river. It's horrible. But also, this is hard to tell, but isn't that part of the Grand Hotel property? So wouldn't management have handled that even now? Arthur's dad isn't managing the thing anymore mm. or whatever. So they've had know. some changes in, in leadership. I get it. It's true. It's fine. He goes back to the hotel gallery, about the only place he's got left where he can go, and sits there next to Elisa's photo, now knowing that the smile on her face is from her seeing him and it's just it's too much and he can't take it and breaks down and hugs her photo and really just kind of loses loses his mind a bit i'm not crying you're crying and before we get to the end of this i just want to point out that photo still exists that picture that they used in the movie yeah you can go see that today oh in the hotel no what strangely no Um, What sense does that make? It doesn't. It doesn't make any sense. But if you want to go and see this photo, it's actually, unless they've moved it, it is currently at a restaurant uh, called the Valley Inn, 
which is on Sherman Oaks Boulevard in Sherman Oaks, California. So in the valley, just outside of LA, just down the road from where I used to work. What? Just on the other side of the 405 freeway from the Sherman Oaks Galleria, which if you've Mm -hmm. watched a movie ever from the 80s and they were in a mall, (laughs) the Sherman Oaks Galleria is the mall that they were in. Right. There's a little place that's been there forever, apparently called the Valley Inn. It's right on the other side and the picture hangs on the wall inside. But why? I don't know. I don't know that story. I just know that it's there, that or at least so it was. weird. Okay. Kind of want to go there and check I, it out. I kind of do, too. So, yeah, but anybody from L.A., anybody from the Valley, anybody from the Valley Inn, if you're listening to this, get in touch with me. Like, let me know what the story is on uh, how the picture ended up there, and can we come and see it? Yeah. I want to know, is it just this single movie prop? Uh-huh. Are there more movie props? Uh-huh. <laughs> like, no idea. so many questions. No okay, idea. anyway. Richard is distraught. Eventually, this picture that he's hugging on the wall is going to end up in the Valley Inn in Sherman Oaks. He doesn't know that. I mean, that is depressing, so I get it. But he falls out of reality, really, at that point, and goes back to his room and stays there, uh, sitting in a chair, looking out the window at the same lighthouse somewhere in time that the old woman had been looking at, and doesn't leave. No. And doesn't leave for so long that the management, including Arthur, start to become very concerned that he hasn't left and the housekeeper's saying, I haven't been in there in days and I, he's not coming out. So they come, they knock on his door, he doesn't answer. They let themselves in with a key and find him sitting catatonic in a chair. Ugh, it's horrible. So what do you do with a catatonic man in a chair? They call an ambulance. On-site doctor comes up and starts taking his pulse and all that good stuff. And you sort of hear these voices talking about it's, you know, it's not great. You know, what's good. Got to hold on till the ambulance gets here. Exactly. And as we are hearing all of those things happen and as we are looking at Christopher Reeve's face and, and Richard's face as he's laying on the bed, just sort of staring into space. We get another one of those moments of we started this movie in darkness hearing voices Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and faded in. And at the end of it, we're hearing voices and fading to darkness. Oh, yeah. And he is leaving this plane of existence of wherever it is he is, but entering a new one. I mean, it's up to your interpretation. But what happens is we have this vision of his face as he's lying on the bed and the doctor and Arthur are leaning over him. And he starts getting this kind of slight little smile on his face. And then the camera tilts up so that it feels like you're floating over his bed. So it's got kind of that I've left my body feeling that people talk about when they've had near-death experiences. Mm -hmm. And then all of a sudden the window where he was looking, where he was sitting at that chair, lights up really brightly. And then you get the sensation that he's moving toward the light. But as he's moving toward the light, Mm -hmm. it's the opposite of him having left Elise before. He fell backwards down a dark tunnel. Into the dark, yeah. And in this one, he's going forward through a light tunnel and ends up with her in some ethereal white space at the end of it, it's holding hands. slowly revealed that it's her there in the distance. She kind of appears and she's reaching out his hand. Instead of reaching out both of her arms doing the whole, Richard, it's like she's welcoming him or bringing out her hand to greet him. With the kicker of he is in his old suit. And so they are together in whatever place this is, real or imagined. And Richard has faded from present day and reality and existence and is now only with her. And just for a brief second, it freeze frames. And I hate that freeze frame. Just have them holding hands and then fade it out into the credits. Come on, people. Why do you hate the freeze frame? Because it just feels so cheesy. Yeah. Freeze frames are cheesy. (laughs) I'm looking at you, Harry Potter. Not always. Not always. But yes, the Harry Potter one. Which one is that? Is that the end of book three? I don't know. Whatever. 
freeze frames. Freeze I don't frames. like them. Mm-hmm. That's the end. That's the end of the movie. That's what we get to finish off this long journey that we've been on with Richard is we get the white tunnel and the bright light, and that's the end. And I'm not usually a sweary swearerson person, but may I swear? Oh, sure. The first time I saw this movie, I was sitting alone in our bedroom, and I legitimately saw it and then said, what the f***? <laughs> because I was like, that's it? That's your end of your movie? Ah, I was kind of shocked by that ending. I think I've come to somewhat enjoy the ending now. I don't know. That's a weird word. But yeah. yeah, you look like you got something to say. Let's talk about the ending. Let's talk about a few other things and really just wrap this up. As of the last episode, which you haven't heard yet, it hasn't aired yet, but as of the last episode, I've really just started branding this piece of the show. So, <laughs> so we're, we're going to do it. I'm calling it Last Looks and uh, let's have Last Looks. Last Looks. Uh-huh. I what you won't understand till you hear the first episode okay I didn't have anything better prepared at this point <laughs> and I figured what the hell did this turn into like a morning show radio <laughs> that's thing? kind of where we are okay okay that's fine okay let's wrap this sucker up. all right let's do it the things I want to talk about real quick so we said very early on that this movie has some strong points that we really like and some weak points that we really don't. And we've pointed a lot of those out. Do you feel like it has more strong than weak or more weak than strong? You know, uh, I kind of feel like a horrible traitor, but I kind of feel like this is a weaker rather than a stronger movie. And I'm not sure why or if that makes sense. I guess I have just so many plot quibbles. Yeah. And there are also some places that I feel like Christopher Reeve's performance makes me feel a little cringy sometimes because there's some delivery of certain scenes and some facial expressions that I feel are just a little too cartoony that always bother me. But then there's other scenes where I think he's so completely charming. And then there's the whole Robinson thing. Like, I I just, I need more from the writing, I suppose. I hear you. I don't know. I mean... Is it a strong film? No. Yeah, I don't. Is think it a so. weak film? Not really, because it is watchable. It is rewatchable. You've rewatched it a hundred times, yeah. and there's fan clubs about it, right? It's solid, I guess. So it's a movie that has some things in it that are worth liking. Yeah. And one of those things that's worth liking, as you have mentioned, is it's just full of pretty people and pretty pictures in pretty places. And it is very romantic. And, you know, something we haven't really talked about yet is the chemistry between Jane Seymour and Christopher Reeve. Their beauty is one thing, but just the way that they react and interact together, it's great. They've got a great chemistry going on. And I didn't know this until actually preparing and watching this movie again. Jane Seymour didn't mention this until last year, but they fell in love on the set, which, you know, of course, I'm going to be like, well, yes, how could you not? And also, yes, that just makes the romance so much more believable because apparently they were in love. They kind of had like a secret thing where they were trying to keep their relationship from the crew. The story goes that during the filming, I think of that last scene where they're sitting on the floor the morning after having their food and talking about getting married, that right before that scene, Christopher Reeve received a call from his ex-girlfriend. And his ex-girlfriend revealed that she was pregnant with what would end up being his first son. So he went back to this ex-girlfriend and tried to work it out and blah, blah, blah. So they did not continue, Jane Seymour and Christopher Reeve did not continue their relationship. But ugh, it certainly reads on screen. Such a good story, though. Yeah, Yeah. you can tell. Here is one of my other thoughts about this film. And I I teased this way up front, but I'll, I'll talk more in depth about it here, which is this movie starts feeling like a movie. 
to me, it very quickly changes to feeling like television. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. It changes to feeling a little movie of the week. It changes to feeling a little lifetimey. It changes yeah. to feeling a little a little soap opera. I agree with that. And I don't just mean that in the acting, although I do mean that in the acting a little bit, because I think the acting's pretty decent in this film. I think I mean it in just the overall vibe led by the cinematography. It feels, because it's so gauzy, it's hard to explain, but it does feel like I'm watching a soap opera in a lot of bits of this, and it doesn't feel as rich of a film as it is in a lot of ways. It doesn't feel rich like a film feels rich. It feels rich like a smaller budget, mm. you know, movie of the week feels rich. I, I don't know if that makes a lot of sense, but... And also a little old-fashioned in old, a way. There we go. That, yeah. Maybe that's what I mean, is, yeah. is it does feel a little old-fashioned and it does feel watching it today there are movies that hold up that were made back around that exact same time even though it's a period piece yeah this one feels in stylistically of its time yeah. it feels like dynasty it feels like i see that you know that kind of a of a time with you may as well just put big shoulder pads on people <laughs> it kind of feels that way to me yeah i get that but that doesn't mean I dislike it. No, no, absolutely not. As yeah. I've made very clear, there's a lot about this movie that I don't like. But I still would say that I love this movie in a lot of ways. Mm -hmm. But I really do think it's because of the romance and the music and the way that that makes you feel things. Yeah. It's more about what the movie makes me feel more than the story, maybe. I'm not sure. Let's talk about the ending then, just to kind of cap this mm -hmm. off. Mm -hmm. What do you think happens what does the ending mean yeah because we taught we said it's left open to interpretation what is your interpretation my interpretation is that he dies in which part are you asking whether or not he went back in time in the first place is that your actual i question? think that's that's part two of my question okay. so we'll pose it now which okay. is did he ever go back in time or was this truly hypnosis or is it both or is it neither and you know i think this is something that again the book does more interestingly than the movie and i didn't quite remember this but the book couches it as that all of this begins when richard collier realizes that he has an inoperable brain tumor and he is dying and he knows he is dying. And so there's the soap opera. That's yeah, exactly. And so it ultimately raises this question of whether or not he went back in time or if it's his brain because his brain is dying and he's dying. Is he having some sort of vision? Is it all make believe essentially or did it actually happen? I feel like the movie denies that mostly. Mm. I think the movie is trying to tell you or lead you to the idea that he did actually somehow magically hypnotize himself into going back in time. I buy that. I feel like that makes a little sense. I'm saying this in quotes because nothing makes sense. But I read it as he actually goes back in time. Then he comes back. It's too hard. It's too much. He dies. And so that's him leaving his body, his soul, whatever you want to call it, and then going to the light and reuniting with Elise in heaven, the afterworld. I'm with you, I think, on, well, let me let me walk that back. <laughs> Did he actually go back in time? I don't, I, that's hard. It is hard. Because I'm thinking back on the movie and I'm thinking, oh, no, of course he didn't. It was just laying in the bed and he had hypnotized himself. That's what hypnotism does. And but, but at the same time, it felt real. You know, as much as going back in time and time travel movie felt, it felt like a real thing that happened. It was presented, like you said, as a real thing that happened. I'm made as an audience to feel like it happened. So does that mean it happened? I don't know. I think that that is, in some movies, leaving it open to interpretation is a strength. Mm -hmm. You get to the end of it and you go, what was it? You know, the end of 2001. Right. What do you think it's about? What do you think it's about? Yeah. I think in this one, it's a huge weakness. I agree with that. 
And I think that's also part of why I was like, what is happening the first time I saw it? Because it didn't feel like that was the ending or should have been the ending. I don't think movies should leave you going, what did I just watch and why? Right, exactly. They should leave you, if they're going to do that, they should leave you asking, whoa, what just happened? Versus, what just happened? (laughs) Yes, exactly. I mean, I can't speak for everybody. I can only really speak for myself. But I think part of why this movie has a cult following is because of the romance. And so I think if it was widely interpreted as, you know, just being like all a dream or all a malfunctioning brain, then I don't think it would be so widely loved in that way. I think that people buy into the whole like it really happened ending. That's my thought. I think this movie is, as you sort of put it before, I may not get your words right, but it's basically just 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 watch. (laughs) Just enjoy it for what it is, which is pretty people and falling in love and beautiful music in a beautiful place. And this music. Right? Right here. Which will be stuck in your head for days. At least for me, I've been walking around the kitchen just humming this all day. I appreciate you talking about this with me. This was fun. I'm glad. Thank you for asking me. You're welcome. And uh, we'll let the Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini slowly fade its way out as we lead into our next section. Richard! (laughs) As we fade into You Can't Handle the Truth. You Can't Handle the Truth is our quiz segment here on Subgenre. It's multiple choice. I'm going to ask you three different questions. You get three chances. If you can get two out of three, you win a genuine 1979 penny. Oh, thanks so much. So I can throw it into the distance and yell at it. Hey, are you ready to play? Sure. All right. Let's do it. Here we go. Question number one. The swimming pool at the Real Grand Hotel on Mackinac Island was named after the famed swimmer and actress Esther Williams. I did know this. Yeah, who shot part of a 1947, what you would call an aqua musical called This Time for Keeps there at the Grand Hotel. And that pool is said to hold about 500,000 gallons of water. Yikes. Okay, you following me so far? Yep, yep, yep. Please don't let this be a math question. If you were to drain the pool and then refill it with Coca-Cola, about how many two-gallon bottles of soda would you need? This is a math question. Is it A, 500,000? Is it B, 950,000? Or C, 1.5 million? I have no idea. And who knows the answer to this? Why? I do. Why did you do this to me? <laughs> I'm going to say C, 1.5 million. Is that right? Oh, man. Is it, it B? is B. Oh, you always go with the middle answer. It's 950,000 two-gallon bottles of soda is going to equal you out to 500,000 gallons of liquid, which is what would fill the pool. Couldn't you just say bottles of water? Like, why would you want to swim in Coke? Because you two liter bottles. You know what a two liter bottle yes, of Coke is? Yes, I do, is. but right. don't, doesn't water also come in two liters? It might. I don't I know. I don't know. What do I know? Whatever. But I don't that, like it. That film I mentioned, the Esther Williams film, yeah. um, This Time for Keeps, by the way, is actually said to have revived the Grand Hotel during a wartime downturn. It saved it from World War II oh. and um, from what had happened to it during the Great Depression. Well, good job, Esther Williams. You got two more. Oh. You got plenty of time to catch up. I have faith. Are they more math questions? Oh man, what if they were? This is why I became an art historian. (laughs) Are you ready for question number two? I guess. Speaking of time, the phrase in a jiffy can be used to indicate something happening in a short amount of time, right? Mm -hmm, Mm-hmm. But technically, what is a jiffy? Oh God. 
Is it A, a scientific term for the time it takes light to travel one femtometer? Is it B, a turn of the 20th century word for a horse carriage? Or is it C, it comes from the acronym JIFF, J-I-F-F, which stands for Journey in Fast Forward? What listeners cannot see is me scowling across the studio at you. I can see it. Uh, I can buy and absolutely not buy any of these definitions. So I'm going to say it's the horse carriage one. B. It's B. A turn of the 20th century word for a horse carriage is a jiffy. No, I'm sorry. Actually, it is A. It is a scientific term for the time it takes light to travel one femtometer in physics or one millionth of a millionth of a millimeter. It's a femtometer? A femtometer, I guess. I have never heard this term. Yeah. In electricity, I I think a a Jiffy has a a different definition, which is the length of a single cycle of alternating current. But regardless, it's not a horse carriage. Great. Thanks for this. I feel so smart right now. You're just very smart. Uh Uh-huh. Just not about things. I'll ask you something that is not about math and not about science. science. Is it about the Beatles? I know a lot about the Beatles. (laughs) It's not about the Beatles. Robert Redford, I got that covered. Are you ready for question number three? Yes. Okay, here we go. You ready? Yes. Speaking of jiffies, let's talk cornbread. Oh, no, jiffy cornbread. I knew that it was going to be either that or jiffy pop. Okay. We were talking about Mackinac Island. Mackinac Island is in Michigan. Yeah. Chelsea, Michigan, a suburb of Detroit, is home to the Chelsea Milling Company, which is the same people who bring us those ubiquitous little blue boxes of Jiffy Cornbread that you find in the baking aisle of your supermarket. Mm. How much money does the Chelsea Milling Company spend annually marketing Jiffy Cornbread? Is it A, $10 million, B, $100 million, or C, not a red cent? I'm going with C. That is correct. Finally, I got one right. That is absolutely correct. In 2017, NPR did a story called How to Make Boring Sell in a Jiffy. (laughs) They interviewed the president and CEO, whose name, by the way, is Howdy Holmes. What? Or was at the time. I love this name. And he told them a couple of things. He said, uh, number one, we're so boring, it's attractive. And number two confirmed that they don't advertise at all. No coupons, no sample packaging, no billboards, no radio, no TV, no celebrity endorsements, nothing. They survive because Jiffy is amazing. Yeah, and also it's a thing. Like, it's been around forever, so you don't need to. But I guess so has cornflakes, and they still advertise. Well, we found what you can answer questions about, which is cornbread. Food. I'm, I'm happy we did that. Yeah. I'm sorry that the first and second questions didn't work out for you. I'm going to give you the penny anyway. Aww, I, I, think I don't you, want it. <laughs> I told you. I've been very clear about my hatred of this currency. You could toss it wherever you like. Straight to hell. You could toss it a femtometer that direction. <laughs> oh, great. <laughs> thank you so much. But thank you for playing. Sure. That music means it's rave rental or refund. This is our final thoughts on the film. Is it a rave? Best film ever or one of the best films ever. We love it. We love it. We love it. Is it a rental? Yeah, it's fine. I'll catch it the next time it's on uh, TBS or whatever. Or is it a refund? God, I hate this movie and I never want to see it again. Art Curious' own Jennifer Dassel, what say you? Solid rental. Coming from me who legitimately owns it. So it's kind of, ugh, yeah. It's a somewhat of a personal rave, but mostly I think this is a rental. It's fine. I'm 100% in agreement with you. Yeah. I think that it is exactly the type of movie you would have seen on a shelf in a video store back in the day. And I did, absolutely. Yeah, cover and everything. I think it's, like we said, it's a, not a strong movie. It's not a weak movie. It falls somewhere in between, but it falls enough somewhere on the, it falls somewhere in time on the scale 
scale enough on the, yeah, that was fine, that you might watch it again if it was on or you might go rent it if you need something while you're sick. It's on in the background and you're doing laundry and you want to watch something while you're folding stuff in front of the TV and that's on. You're like, yeah, let's do this somewhere in time. I legit may have been folding laundry while I watched this. I think you were, in fact. (laughs) (laughs) Which, thank you, by the way. Thanks for doing that. I do what I can. Yeah. Thank you so much for coming back on here. I know I've dragged you on here for three seasons in a row now. I'm probably going to drag you on for other stuff in other times. Hopefully we come back for fourth or fifth or ninth seasons, or we just give up entirely, at which case (laughs) I'll let you off the hook. But I I appreciate you coming in and sitting down with me to talk about this movie. It is a pleasure, and it's always nice to talk about something other than art. You do talk about art for a living. Yeah, yeah, you know, I do. So tell us what's going on with Art Curious, with you, what should we know, where can we find you, all that fun stuff. Art Curious Podcast Season 13, out right now. You can also find me on YouTube. Um, Just search Art Curious, one word, in your favorite podcast provider or on YouTube. You can find me also at my website and on social media at Art Curious Pod or at ArtCuriousPodcast.com. And I got a book. Where can we get that? Anywhere. Barnes and Noble, bookstores, independent bookstores, independent bookstores. Go find it on bookshop.org. I'll go find it in the other room. Yeah, we've got a few copies. Yeah, we do. Just a couple. Why are you looking at me like that? I don't know. I'm trying to figure out a way to end this show. No, we can't. Just keep talking. <laughs> this has been Subgenre, a podcast about the movies. Subgenre is a production of Kabunki and is recorded and mixed at Studio K. This episode was written, produced, and hosted by me, Josh Dassel, alongside my guest host, Art Curious host and author Jennifer Dassel. Our theme music is Still Room on the Night Train by Ketza featuring Solar Flare. If you haven't already by now, go and subscribe to Subgenre on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, or wherever the hell else you listen to podcasts. We've got new episodes, we've got bonus content coming all season long, so you're not going to want to miss a thing. And where you can, help us out, please, by leaving your five-star review to tell the world why they should listen. Trust me when I say it's massive in helping other listeners find us, just like you did. You can also help us keep the mics on by supporting Subgenre with your donations. Find the link at our website, subgenrepodcast.com. We also do the Insta and Twitter thing, at least for now, both at SubgenrePod. Next up on Subgenre Season 3, more time twisters. Keep listening. But in the meantime, please remember, we're all different. So no matter what your subgenre, be kind to who you meet. That's a wrap! Kabunki. Oh.